I can't really remember when I last had any hope. And I certainly can't remember when anyone else did either. Because really, since women stopped being able to have babies, what's left to hope for? All the voiceover was not in the movie. Not yeah, at all. No, the I movie. was like, that must was. be made up. That yeah. literally explains it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, welcome, uh, wherever you are, whenever you are. Good evening. Uh, welcome to the Underground Table, the Knights of the Underground Table. Uh, I am your host, John Garcia, and with me is Ryan King. I'm gonna open a Corona for my for my family here. Ah, uh, there we go. There we go. That sounds good. That's the good sound. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and and Michael Dixon is also with me. Uh, hey guys, yeah. Uh, Ryan has returned from a trip to Florida, bearing gifts of uh, Corona to uh, celebrate. I don't know uh, us being family, I guess. Yeah, um, so we're all family. <laughs> uh, but this is this is good because I've actually been workshopping a uh, underground table drinking game, and so <laughs> I wanted to uh, to float the idea by you guys, and and we can get get shit faced off this one six pack here. But um, uh, I was thinking every time John references owning a shitty Blu-ray that he's ashamed of. We drink every time every- Ryan re- mentions wrestling. We drink, and every time I bitch about character development, we drink. I was, yeah, I was gonna. I was just gonna add. Uh, it's either every time I mention a shitty Blu-ray, or it's every time I bring a movie into this that shouldn't belong it to whatever this movie is. Oh, yeah. I'm also fine with, with this movie. It. Is just like Death Promise. Yeah. No, John, it's not. It's, it's not like Death Promise. But it has the same themes. <laughs> Um, yeah, cheers, and, guys. and cheers, everybody. Mm. I've been at a Corona in a long time. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the Fast and Furious ride that yeah. you went on in yes. the amusement park. Very Good underwhelming. <laughs> this is the second time in like three or four weeks that I've had Corona, and I hadn't had Corona since probably I was like in college before that. But before I went to see F9 with some friends, we went and got dinner beforehand at uh, a bar near Bob Bullock, and they ordered a bucket of Coronas to get in the nice. mood to go see F9. I was like, guys, we don't have to do this. We can <laughs> order different beer. And they're like, no, we got to get Corona. Nice. <laughs> uh, so, Ryan, this week, um, Coronas aside, yes, this, yes. Week, we, this was your pick. Uh, you picked Children of Men. Well, he also picked the Corona. And you yeah, picked I the Corona. You picked one <laughs> yeah. good thing out of the two. The only beer left um, after. <laughs> dedicated to the, to the joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so did you want to kind of enlighten us? Yeah. Um, in Children of Men, uh, we're presented with a world where 18 years, I think, prior, um, the last birth happened. They actually mention the baby Diego that was the last kid, and he's now... 18 and apparently still uh, called baby Diego still called baby Diego and apparently a wanker according to (laughs) (laughs) numerous people numerous people Um, Clive Owen is sort of a disillusioned uh, maybe alcoholic definitely disinterested Uh, we're presented seeing him kind of ignoring a lot of things that are going on around with him early Um, he has a run-in with his ex-wife who is now leading the Fishes, a sort of terrorist rebel group that wants open immigration. England is kind of the last, or I guess Great Britain is kind of the last bastion of seeming government rule, seeming, yeah, it still looks like it's definitely falling apart, but as far as we can tell, the rest of the world is completely in chaos. And they have a closed, very, very closed immigration policy 
um, and these fishes want this like full open immigration and and you know for for whatever the reasons are, and so they come to Theo and want him to use his connections to get transit papers for an immigrant girl. He talks to his cousin and gets those papers, but they're including him uh, as papers as well. So he's going to have to help them get this girl where they're trying to get her across the country. Uh, when he's with them, finding out after, let's see, they they take the girl and get attacked by a gang, which causes uh, Theo's ex-wife to be shot and kind of throws the fishes in chaos while he's there at their safe house, finds out that the girl key that he's transiting is actually pregnant. And so this is the first child that's going to be born since whatever happened that's causing all this chaos, having kids not exist. And he then learns at night that the fishes actually planned the attack that killed his ex-wife, and they want to use the baby for something different than trying to send it to this human project group that supposedly, I guess, all the scientists, they're going to save the world, but no one even really knows that they exist. And so that kind of kicks off the events of Theo and Key kind of running away from the fishes who want to take the baby and use it to help promote their open immigration, kind of using it as a hostage, and trying to take her to this human project boat that uh, supposedly they only know, like, the one place that I guess that it's going to be on the coast that they have to get to. And essentially, yeah, the, the movie is, is mostly from there, just them kind of going from, like, shitty situation to shitty situation, trying to keep them alive, keep the baby alive, and eventually get there, with the main piece being um, having no clue if it's even there, what exactly is going to happen, and just having this sort of, like, hope and faith that that's going to work out, and that even that maybe this baby means that more kids can be born or that this kid could have kids or something, right? This sort of, like, hope and faith that now exists where Theo was kind of this disillusioned person at the beginning of the movie. I guess I'll go into why, why I picked it and then, like, talk about it a little bit, but I do want to hear, since you guys hadn't watched it, more of what you guys have to say about it. Uh, this came out in 2006, and I watched it in theaters that it came out. Not quite sure why I went to see it, but just something that looked interesting. I've always kind of been into sci-fi and has a bit of a sci-fi... I mean, it is. It's a sci-fi dystopian movie. Um, and I was kind of blown away seeing it in the theater. I think the theater really does the, like, slow, long takes justice. Um, I had seen Itumama Tambien. Kind of was underwhelmed, I think, when I saw it. I, I didn't really get it. It took later viewings to get it. But saw that Creon had a good eye for things. And then he did... Uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, not too long after that, which I actually think is the only good Harry Potter movie, and that's because of what he puts to it. So I was interested in that aspect. And this, I do think, is the, you know, Itumama Tambien put him on the map, but I think this is where you get to, okay, he can really do a lot. Like, the, that wasn't a one-hit wonder. He isn't stuck having fallen into the trap of being an independent uh, director getting picked up by a big franchise. Uh, he was able to move on from that. And obviously now we can see he has a like a lot more to his credit. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I guess the, the Academy Awards that he's won now, not just been nominated for. Yeah, he's won a bunch of shit since this. Yeah. Um, I went and saw it a second time after that. I liked it so much when I saw it in the theater. And I've kind of told people about it since. And I feel like it doesn't get mentioned a lot. I do think there were things in 2006 that probably out overshadowed it um, that are remembered more now. Yeah, Speed Racer. 
Yeah, definitely speed racer. <laughs> are we drink? That's a drink. Yeah, that's, a drink. <laughs> that's a drink. I think so. Do you own this on Blu-ray? Yes. Oh, fuck this too. All right. <laughs> um, no, like, yeah, like The Departed came out that year and I think kind of swept up a lot of things. But this was um, nominated for cinematography, not in, nominated for editing, both, you know. And screenplay. And, yeah, adapted screenplay, um, which is a very different take on the book, on my understanding, is Kieran. Kieran kind of didn't want to read it. Like, he knew the plot. and mm. Oh, interesting. He yeah, just knew the general concept and yeah, then he wrote he, a completely Yeah, he tweeted script. a bunch. Yeah, so they, the script was, like, multiple people that worked on it, and then Kieran kind of gave his last take. And my understanding is Clive Owen also worked on it somewhat. So they, they kind of pieced it together as they were going before they started filming it. Um. Yeah, but it's still, even watching it now, it's actually probably more prescient than it was then. So in 2006, this is definitely on the heels of September 11th, which is why Kieran said he wanted to work on it, kind of had ignored it before. But in 2001, the script seemed more relevant to him. He could play through that concepts. It definitely feels like that. Um, and in the time where I think people were kind of getting tired of George Bush, um, it has a bit yeah. of that too. Um, but then those themes really stick out now, even even more of where we maybe have not made progress or definitely regressed. Um, I think it's interesting still even to look at it now. Yeah. Dixon, you can resume. Yeah. Um, so I, I liked this movie a lot. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Coron, and I just had never gotten around to watching this. Um, I think it's like I would describe it as like a depressing dystopian thrill ride which is, is kind of an you know an odd group of words but I think that that kind of fits like you're just moving from place to place so fast and the, the movie is so um, kind of high intensity that it's just really engrossing and really pulls you into everything that's going on um, I think the, the things that really stood out to me um, the set design was just incredible um, like the background of every shot is ridiculously meticulous with a, a bunch of extras, a bunch of advertisements, newspaper articles from the time that really work to put you into the environment that they're trying to portray here. And, and it, it feels like a realistic version of a dystopia, which is a bit unnerving because it does feel uh, pretty realistic, you know, with uh, things with um, immigration and economic inequality and um, like fractured leftist movements and <laughs> stuff yeah. like that that um you know we're kind of starting to see the buddings of today and it does it definitely does feel like a pretty prescient film that that you know kind of did a good job of predicting kind of what a dystopia was likely to look like um the the second thing that's just is incredible about this movie is the cinematography it's just so engrossing just just some of the best uh, cinematography you'll ever see. Emmanuel Lubezki is uh, just one of the greatest of all time. He's um, Quaron, uh, Terrence Malick, and Alejandro Inarritu's preferred um, cinematographer. And so he's made some of the most beautiful films of all time, uh, The Tree of Life, Birdman, Gravity, The Revenant. Um, and you can see in this movie, this is kind of the, the first time that I've seen in his filmography him starting to experiment with these long takes and this mm -hmm. just kind of different style. Um, there are three long takes in this movie that are just just really pull you into the action and, and are just inc incredibly engrossing that I was, was pretty um, blown away by. So we, we can get into more detail on those later, but the movie looks fantastic. The only like really quibble I have with it is uh, I think the main character, uh, Theo, played by Clive Owen, is a bit weak. I, I think 
Um, he's kind of a, a, st- a st- yes, please yes, drink. A drink. Okay. Uh, yeah, he, he's kind of a, uh, just kind of a everyman stand in that's just kind of there to do what needs to be done. And I, I didn't really care about what he was going through that much. I think that's, that's really the only complaint I had. I think for the most part, the film is, is pretty impeccable. I love Julianne Moore. I wish she was in it more. That was disappointed when she got knocked off early on. And then, um, Hippie Michael Caine is definitely the best Michael Caine. Um, I'm very tired of the, you know, kind of uppity, pompous British butler Michael Caine. And I really love the long-haired hippie lives on a, uh, you know, compound in the woods and grows weed, Michael Caine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, I'll I'll, I'll throw it over to you, John, to give your initial thoughts. Yeah. So I remember when this movie came out, I... I hesitated to go see it and I don't remember why. I think I saw it and I was like, nah, I'm not in a place where I want to see whatever this is going to be. I couldn't tell if it was try hard or if it was depressing. And it was one of those things like now I can't remember what my justification for it was, but I'm really sad. I didn't go see it in a theater because I could feel, I had to watch this on, um, a really crappy, like 39 inch television. I, I was taking a mini vacation and that oh. was the only place I could watch it. And so I was like, man, you got to watch if, it here on yeah, your big projector. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, if the screen was bigger, um, I would have felt the the air sucked out of the room. But as mm-hmm. it stands, it it managed to filter the air out of the room. Like it was, this is still a little bit of something going on with like how powerful the scenes could be when they were drawn out for that long, and the way that the cinematography worked. Just um, there was a point in time where uh, Sasha watched it with me. She was planning on going to sleep, like ten minutes in. She was like, yeah, it's bedtime. I'm just gonna go to bed i don't care it just put it on and maybe like five minutes after it started um i noticed that she had kind of like shifted a little bit and then like another 10 minutes went by and her eyes were like way more open than they were before and (laughs) she was like i don't remember how this movie ends i remember i saw it now i want to know i want to remember (laughs) and uh, she got drawn in and i was just like oh okay like cool um and uh, yeah it just yeah i agree dixon that um Clive Owen's character, Theo, was not super well fleshed out. It it reminded me in points of Brazil, um, but that's also Mm. because dystopian and my brain connects those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, And it was kind of one of those, I guess, when I was contrasting it in my my head, um, like Brazil is a a meticulously architected dystopia from Terry Gilliam, and it very much feels like everything is staged. But this one meticulously architected in a way that feels organic. Yeah. yeah. And seeing the, the guards in the background screaming at people and the other kind of off action that's not as in focus. It just, it's the little shivers down your spine when you're watching it that you're like, oh, that uh, just, it felt so natural um, where you could have easily, I could see in like a, um, in lesser hands being some kind of, um, oh, the, that background stuff, just throw like military guys standing around. They don't have to do anything really. Just put props in. Like we just need bodies to look kind of like this is happening, but everybody looked distraught. Uh, it seemed like the extras all had their own direction of what yeah, they were doing. Yeah. And it was Corona's just really like, great about doing that in, in yeah. a lot of his movies where you feel like there are 10 different scenes going on in every shot. And there's just, you know, like, oh, I want to hear what they're saying, but like we've moved on now. And every, every shot is so rich with so much going on. 
Yeah. And like the ads in the background. Yeah. Those, those things that really draw me in. I love um, when a movie has its own lore established and you can pinpoint kind of the timeline where something might have developed and think about it more. And it, it fits in the world itself when you're like working backwards from like the quietus ads yeah. where it's like you decide when. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, OK, there's a marketing group behind this. There's like yeah, all of these like things. Big pharma kind of, pushing yeah. suicide drugs to the masses. Just yeah. Um, feels like we're so, not too far from that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was just it was just one of those experiences where um, everything that I watched in it, uh, it, it made me sad, um, both because that's the emotional potency of it. And it also made me kind of sad that, like, I had decided to miss out on this uh, this experience when it came to theaters. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't really have much more to say other than that. Um, hippie Michael Caine yeah. <laughs> reminds me of dreadlocks Gary Oldman from True Romance. <laughs> and, and I was like, I don't need this comparison to be happening right now. <laughs> hippie Michael Caine is better, I think, because oh, yeah. he's like relatable and fun. Yeah, I, oh, yes. hang out with him. I yeah. agree. Yeah, I agree. It's just one of those things where like I saw it and I was like, <laughs> my brain was like, you remember Gary Oldman did this? <laughs> Um, yeah, that was my, I brought another movie into this that doesn't belong with it, but (laughs) that character is so good too, because he just, he feels like somebody that, you know, like your crazy uncle or something like he tells the same jokes to everybody and he he gets so much joy out of telling the same jokes. And like, he lives out on a comp in a compound in the middle of nowhere with his, his disabled wife who can't speak. So like, it's, it would make sense that he tells the same jokes to people that they come by, but. He, yeah. yeah, he lives to entertain. It's mm. it's how it felt anyway from meeting him. He was just like his energy levels. And yeah, I haven't seen Michael Caine do not a posh British, you know, butler person that was trying to be this. And so it was fun to have that experience with him, yeah. even if it was in this depressing dystopian environment. And I did have to watch him die. Uh, it was, it was fun up until that point. <laughs> Christopher Nolan needs to watch this movie and to like, okay, next time, name my next movie. I'm going to make Michael Caine do some weird, crazy something. Shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. Well, so let's, let's talk about the background stuff. Cause I actually think the first time I saw this, that was kind of what caught me, you know, the, the long takes and all that, it was really just engrossing where I was locked into it, but I had that feeling of like, there's a lot more going on that you're missing and i think that's like you said kind of a yeah curon's kind of thing but it really is interesting to contrast it to some other dystopian movies like you did like brazil to me there's also those elements of blade runner or clockwork orange where you kind of yeah. see okay that's how that got to be but it's much more downplayed than Blade Runner. It is maybe closer to Clockwork. Corone actually s- said that he, when was when he was thinking up the set design and working with the production designers, that he wanted it to be the anti-Blade Runner. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's really interesting because Bra- Blade Runner is really stylized. The technology is like so hot. Yeah, and yeah. stylized. And this is just very realistic. Everything is crumbling because like we have no generation coming up to replace people who are dying off. So just infrastructure is, is going away. They're like abandoned schools and, yep. and stuff. And just everything's falling apart. And it, it feels like uh, it's a very different vision of a dystopian future, but it feels like the correct or the more correct one. Yeah, the anyway. one we're maybe headed towards. Yeah. Um, and Blade Runner has that. Like there's a lot of trash laying around the building, right? Yeah. There's an abandoned building. It's very people are kind of leaving and, Earth. But it is, yeah, yeah. it's really lo- like bright. Um, futuristic where this one is very bleak mm-hmm. dark muted. gray very muted yeah. um and then yeah all these all these things you see just on the periphery of like news clips 
and headlines and the meticulousness of them in um, the part where we first get to meet Julianne Moore, uh, character Julian, which is easy now to remember. Yeah, it's um. actually that's actually confusing because it's almost the same name, but it's pronounced I'm, slightly differently. Yeah. Pretty sure you called her Julian. I think last I guess said Julie. Yeah, yeah, or Julian or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Um, so yeah, you meet Julian, um, and they have him in this uh, Clive Owen's character Theo in this room with a bag over his head, and they lift it off, and it's completely filled with papers. They every one of those papers is individual and meticulous as a headline. Like they sat down and mm-hmm. went to the trouble, like craft all of these as realistic newspapers yeah the advertisements in the background the only technology we see that's sort of like beyond ours is just enough believable you see some of the sort of like almost google glass type stuff yeah yeah like computer monitors computer monitors and some like heads up display type stuff on the cars the advertisements are a little more animated like the screens are a little more complex but that's about it like it's just sort of there yeah, it's not it's not the blatant like oh Big Ben has a digital face now or whatever right. the fuck it would be <laughs> right or any flying cars or anything like that right yeah. everything and the, even the cars they do feel like the sort of extension of electric cars that we have now yeah they're just like a little bit boxier and uh, yeah they have the display yeah. on the windshield and it, it feels like they thought a lot about what in this future should be more high tech and what will be crumbling and dissolving away beneath us and they uh it feels like they just nailed the things that would be higher tech and the things that would be just absolute shit (laughs) yeah the um like you talk about with the characters in the background there's a lot of going by immigrants in cages which is definitely very you know like now you someone would watch this now and not know this is in 2006 would be like oh yeah i know exactly what they're talking about where at the time like that was there was certainly you know, harsh stance on immigration, but not literally like right outside your town, immigrants in cages. It was the like way it is at now. the train stop, there were yeah. just cages yeah. full of immigrants. Immigrants is like boxed yeah. up and treated that way. And, and it very much like what you hear from them when you see them, it very much evokes um, like Nazi Germany, concentration mm-hmm. camps of like running people off, sort of like completely ignoring what they have to say. Um, and then the, like, but you just see that, like you see that, you see police brutality on the side there. Like, you drive by it, and it's interesting to see Theo's character at the beginning kind of ignoring all that stuff. Like, he doesn't care about... Mm-hmm. It, it seems affected somewhat by the explosion that happens at the beginning, but not He's become so used, used, to, used to, it. to it. He's lived in this world, and he doesn't even hardly notice it anymore. Yeah. Um, Almost somewhat comical at the beginning, Baby Diego's death uh, kind of affecting a lot of people, but the way that it's presented where he, like, gets into an altercation with someone that wants his autograph... Yeah. And then they, <laughs> they stab each other, I guess, or something. Yeah. yeah. And everyone's, like, torn up on it, and Theo's, like, getting a coffee, and then just goes Everybody to Everybody in the coffee shop is yep. just frozen watching the TV, and he's like, yeah, give me fucking coffee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, which he then pours alcohol into yeah. <laughs> before going to work, and then tells his boss, like, oh, I'm really cut up about maybe Diego. I need to go home. <laughs> yeah. Can I, work, can I work from home, please? <laughs> yeah. That, that opening shot is so well done. Like, that was the first one of the three shots I wanted to talk about, where yeah. it starts inside the coffee shop there's the cameraman seems to be like sitting on top of the counter and you can see everybody kind of underneath him looking up at the tv and clive owen come in like not giving a shit just give me my coffee and the camera follows him out down the street circles around while he's putting booze in his coffee and the place the coffee shop explodes and that that shot just like really sets the tone for the movie going forward on we're gonna have 
really badass immersive cinematography and we're gonna like fuck you up with violence when you least expect it <laughs> yeah and it yeah. falls you with it. then he has he gets tinnitus in that moment the ringing that sticks from the explosion yeah and that yeah. sound follows until he's like at work as it slowly starts to diminish it stays there for quite a while very unsettling mm-hmm. yeah. um yeah but that now that, that first explosion kind of sets you into like a completely different like oh whoa like shit's going down because you also have heard scenes the headlines at that point and kind of heard about the lack of the kids and that's it like everything that's presented to you is on that periphery right we don't understand and it never really gets into like why pregnancies stopped and why right. births aren't happening um you see dead cows like burnt in the background a few times not really explained what that is if they're diseased or gone yeah. bad cow or we, we don't know there there's one thing there that you mentioned that i i wished it had delved into a little bit more which was um on the infertility they don't really they only talk about it and the movie has no sex in it at all and i and it doesn't really talk about that yeah. and you wonder if infertility is driven by um you know like a lack of sex drive in the population or if there's any th- sort of correlation or you think if if everybody could, could if everybody could have sex without having kids there would be like some wild parties going on or something and and somewhere in like the rich neighborhood maybe Danny Houston's character or something <laughs> <laughs> engaging in some weird fucking orgies but um I guess yeah, there's they, still they don't STDs. Really, yeah I guess um <laughs> Yeah, and all like I mean, there's probably lots of fucking diseases in this world, but you would think they would address that somewhere, yeah. like how sex fits into this society, but they don't really discuss that. Aside from I guess key, it's kind of implied that she might be a prostitute, but you're not or really raped sure. or something. Yeah, it's yeah. Not, also not like a lot of it's not necessarily explained. Right, there's a lot right. on the sidelines. You could also take it as with this sort of lack of hope that the movie is dealing with that entertainment in general has just probably kind of fallen to the wayside. Like you're kind of at a point where it's like, well, there's no future. Like Theo says at the point, like, well, 50 years from now, everything will be gone. Like, what's the point? So I could see where a lot of people are just kind of falling into this day to day, whatever. And that there's no, there's no future for relationships. Like Jasper even talks to him about previous girls. He's like, yeah, that, Uh that ended like dating's not the same now because why? Like, yeah. everything is sort of, like, why do it? It definitely seems like depression is is at an all-time high. Yeah, I mean, that's why, like, yeah. they make the quietest pills, right? It's uh-huh. literally right, yeah, just, like, there's nothing out. else to do. Just check out, and there you go. Um, and, and that was, like, something that, yeah, when I was watching it, I started thinking more and more. It really jogs the imagination in terms of peeling back parts of that layer and wondering. Um, like, I was talking with Sasha about... Do they have uh, programs to make people feel like, hey, here's what it was like? Like, there's a museum where they're like, here's a baby. Here's how you would hold a baby. And this is how humans used yeah. to do it. Like, how do they reflect on that? And those are things that we were thinking about when we were watching, like, uh, Theo kind of go through um, his stages of grief and the child that he had lost with Julian. Um, I was like, yeah, how do you how do you really cope? And that's kind of like... I don't know if he was kind of like good riddance. Like I lost a child. I don't give a shit about anybody else's child. It's kind of better now that everybody's childless. Maybe they know how I feel or something, but um, yeah, there was, there was bits of it that uh, I really was way more curious on peeling back. What other kind of ads, what other kind of culture developed because of this? And I was um, yeah, I, I can't fault this movie for not, 
peeling back those layers more. I'm sure that there's plenty of online literature people have written because of this or like because <laughs> of the book, they're like extending parts of it to be like, hey, here's what would be cool. Um, yeah, it's probably less that like culture developed as culture just fell apart. That's like, true. Like culture needed, like the whole stuff with the art. Yeah. And it's maybe kind of that interesting, like trying to hold on to some of the art, but. Yeah. As it's being what damaged and, too yeah, it's being and like damaged destroyed and. and that, that scene I thought was really interesting. Um, normally, I hate Danny Houston, and, and I hated him in this movie, but, like, in He's the limited. right way. Yeah, like, right. he was cast perfectly in this. I think usually, like, I can't stand him because he just seems like such a, a pompous, pretentious asshole. And, like, in this movie, that's exactly what was needed yeah, in that right. role. And he's, like, this rich fucker who has all this really nice art. Like, he has... Michelangelo's David at his like office or house or, or wherever that with is with a leg missing that they're hanging out. Yeah, the, like shin is missing. There's a metal <laughs> rod stuck there. He's on his last leg. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, but uh, um, Theo goes there to try to get transit papers for him and Key to get her to and, and her uh, child to safety, and um, they start talking about art and about how. Um, Danny Houston's character had gotten all this, saved all this art from different cities when these terrible things happened. And he's like, oh, yeah, what happened in New York was just terrible for the art world. And Theo is like, for the people, too. And he's right. like, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, if that feels like a, a really accurate dystopian representation of like class war and, you know, just the, the richest of the rich just caring about preserving their livelihood and their lifestyle and the things that, bring them happiness and just kind of ignoring all of the the poverty and devastation going on in the world around them. Yeah. It, and that kind of reminds me uh, on his way to meet his brother. Uh, he passes like a dog park, right? Where there's all of, like the fancy, the, whole, like, the a, royal, kind of like the good breeds of dogs, quote unquote, yeah. like the best and most expensive, like poodles and whatever else are just kind of there and everybody's having a great time in these green fields. It's like one of the only times you see kind of that unmuted color in the background of like a rich, lavish area. Yeah, there's like bands and the guys have yeah. big red jackets and the, somebody walks by with a zebra. Yeah, yeah, somebody just has exotic animals and you're like, okay, um, that must be where all the rich folk hang out. I'm fairly yeah. certain uh, on the way to this art thing. And then later kind of the theme of, um, I was thinking about like there's a the, kind of a man versus nature or like they, they bring in uh, a recurring theme of like dogs into the movie lots of it every every scene has like animals yeah but but in particular like for the fish they recruit using um have you seen this dog signs (laughs) where they're like yeah let's talk Mm. about this yeah and then um whenever they go out to the farm uh theo they're like oh wow these dogs like you they don't like anybody but they like you and so there's kind of and then and the lady that helps him out in the the immigration town or has whatever the little has a little dog. Yeah, and and all of the dogs have that. It seems like it's a a lurking, unseen kind of force of loyalty. Of like, even though Theo is um, downtrodden, he has lost his faith. Um, that still he has a, a nugget of it that's following him around and greeting mm. him at different junctures and reminding him because the dog's greeting him when he's about to find out Key is pregnant, reminding him of what he's truly kind of committed to in his activism, what he was committed to and what he's going back to. And then the woman who has the little dog helping them through everything and not following them anyway, like self-sacrifice and that kind of loyalty and him pushing key and himself out in the rowboat as he is bleeding out to his last breath. 
that, that that's like the full character arc of him. But I just found it fascinating to see um, kind of the commodification of the, the dogs in that opening scene at the park um, or that, or that establishing scene at the park with all the rich people and then following where dogs show up after that, because it's like the, there's not really a, a value assigned to the dogs in that park, probably aside from status symbol. And this is what it is. Like you buy, you buy loyalty, you buy these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, they follow Theo around for free. Uh, he effectively has to pay a different price to, to kind of like maintain that. Um, yeah. So that's something I, w- I wanted to mention. So both, yeah, there's the dogs that you see there, but there's also tons of scenes where there's just dogs barking in the background, like very much giving that like third world feel mm-hmm. where you just yeah. see dogs around and dogs barking. They're kind of not owned by anybody. There's a lot of just like loose animals yeah. in the world, yep. especially in the, the refugee camp at the end. There's like a herd of sheep yeah. that walk yeah. down the street and they're like chickens on the stairway of this building that they're in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's a ton of animals. Um, and then you, you talk about the loyalty for the dog, for the lady in the immigration camp, but then Jasper, Michael Caine's character also has his dog, right? Yeah. That's there with him. Um, but when they first go to the first safe house, uh, there's a little cat that also climbs up his leg. Yeah. Right. And so the dogs at first are like, Oh, these dogs don't like anybody, but they like you, Theo. And then this little cat's like climbing up his leg. Like digging into him too at yeah. the right moment, right? So right. when they're trying to decide something as a group and the cat just like digs its claws right into Theo. Yeah, it keeps I, like kind of climbing. I can't remember what that decision was, but it was the commitment to I think for Key to have the baby. They were the, right the discussing whether she'd have the baby there mm-hmm. or try to continue yeah. to the human project, and the cat kind of keeps pulling his attention away. Yeah. And then at Jasper's, Jasper also has cats, and they're all over Theo a couple of times as well. So I think we're kind of continuously presented with this like animals kind of intrinsically trusting Theo and him seeming to kind of care a little bit about them. Like he pets some of them, the cats and uh, then the sort of inherent trust that he has for him. And the fact that once he sees her pregnant, he knows like, Oh, this is what we've got to do. And then puts himself completely on the line. And that's why uh, Julian was like, this is who we can trust to get this done. Yeah. And so that you talk about as a character, there are hints again, under the cover of there are. Yeah. Yeah. That, that he maybe actually does care. Like he breaks down and cries in the woods after Julian passes, even though he seemed to be ambivalent to her or mm-hmm. angry at her. Yeah. Really is upset afterwards. Um, hearing about his loss of his son. I did really like the scene where Theo's in, frame in the front and in the uh out of focus in the back jasper michael kane's character is telling uh z about julian and theo and their son and how the son passed away and this mm-hmm. conversation of like faith and happenstance and things like that and just seeing his sad like he doesn't he wants to go in there but he doesn't want to confront that past or hear about it and he ends up just walking away um so yeah, it's interesting how we're we're seeing him as this someone who was really into his son, really does seem to care about like kids and animals and things like that, a very, you know, trustworthy person who's completely given up that and then shoved back into it. Yeah, he almost he feels like a person who is just kind of dead inside and then um, you know, the the prospect of a new child coming into the world kind of awakens part of whatever personality he used to have back when when he was with Julian and, and had a son. Yeah. Yeah. He I mean, 
unlike us, he ignores a majority of the background of everything going on until he starts <laughs> until to he confronts him. actually, yeah, until it starts to confront him. And even as you just mentioned, they're having that conversation in the background while he's in the foreground yeah. at Jasper's place. And he still was kind of like, I'm not going to go in there. I don't want to confront that. It's, it's, kind of to him he's like it's behind me much like the coffee shop is behind him when it explodes i bet his first thought was like shit now i gotta get coffee somewhere else it was like just a very trivialized trivialized thought process he lost his booze too yeah (laughs) and 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 you know baby diego died but whatever like i just need to work from home uh kind of thing but yeah so i was trying to dig more on um, exactly where that line is. Cause yeah, we were talking about how nature is kind of everywhere. There are animals everywhere and there are animals that are placed. Um, well, in particular, you mentioned a chicken Dixon, uh, chickens I associate with kind of the factory farm industry mm-hmm. being built up. And it's another construct within like human society that's become economically just a big thing, uh, at least in mm-hmm. America. And, it's one of those things where you see this, you see the dog park on the way to that museum. Everything is meticulously arranged. It's all the constructs of man. Like uh, it's the dogs on leashes, it's, it's exotic animals that man has dominance over that has brought in. Um, it's the artwork. Uh, the yeah, artwork all, yeah. is, is all, it's not even being shared with anybody anymore. It doesn't technically exist to the world. It's just in this place so that they can say they have it. He says it. on a wall behind him. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, you start all of the movie starts in that holy, like meticulously constructed dystopian um, authoritarian government. And then you go out into the woods where everything's much more messy and everything's much more integrated from like seeing the animals running wild everywhere from seeing the chickens that were probably at one point in somebody's farm or in somebody's, you know, industrial area that are now like on the steps with the humans. Um, and it's kind of this equalizer of like, now everything is back that this, in this disarray here, it's the man rejoining nature. Uh Um, and that is also where the baby is born when kind of man returns to nature, when there's, when keys given to or taken out into the, um, that, that like refugee camp or yeah. the, uh, the outside of the wall. You also have the school that's abandoned and the deer comes running out. Like the school yeah. is kind of overgrown. Yeah. Which talk about that. I really liked that. Just a minor note about cinematography, the shot uh, composition between um, Z talking to, and then you have key on the swing and there's that like teardrop shaped break in the glass where I think uh, key is like perfectly isolated and you get full focus mm-hmm. on her and full focus on them having their conversation. Um, that separation between uh, th- their inside and actually having this conversation. And she is the subject of that conversation. It's just a really beautiful way to line up that shot to drive it home. They could have Z. Uh, I think it, yeah, Z, I think Z, 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 Miriam and Curl. Z is the girl. Key is, is the girl, is, and no, Miriam is like the. Was oh, it Miriam that the, yeah, uh, Miriam. Like oh, sorry. the midwife or nurse? Or, I got confused yeah. because I thought you brought somebody new in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's Key. Sorry. All right. Key, no, is, no the, key yeah. is the girl, and Miriam, Miriam is like a midwife that's, yeah. I was like, oh, they have all these E names. And yeah. <laughs> it makes sense to me. Uh, <laughs> um, it's like a Guy Ritchie film. Uh, but no. that, that is a really cool shot, though. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was just one of those where I was like, oh, man, I, I audibly had to say like that. Uh, it's one of my scenes where I'm like, that's cool. I like that. Um, and I look like an idiot in front of Sasha because she was like, what are you talking about? It's <laughs> like, oh, uh, shot. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, that's definitely. <laughs> well, let, let's talk about those extended shots, like some of the cinematography and some of the setup and stuff. So the first extended shot we get 
is in the car when they're going to the safe house. That shot is fucking incredible. Yeah, it's that's just, really crazy how yeah. that one. Yeah, it just starts off. So you have Julian in the in the front driver's side. It's, right? it's no because oh, no. it's that's right. a British car. Oh yeah. <laughs> Julian's in what would be our driver's side, uh-huh. and then. Um, I don't remember his name right now, but the the other guy from the fish is is driving and yeah, in the back. Um, she would tell Edgy Force character. Yeah, I yeah. Don't Luke. Remember. Luke yeah, is Luke. his name. Say John or Luke or something. Yeah, right, Luke. And uh, in the back, we have Miriam, Key, and Theo. And as they're driving along, and they're kind of like talking and chatting. There's some joking, and like Julian and Theo are doing this thing with a ping pong <laughs> ball so back and forth. Weird. In the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that I guess is something they used to do. Um, yeah, and like it, for, for people who haven't seen it, Julian just turns around and brings a <laughs> ping pong ball out of her pocket. And Theo's like, what? No. And she's like, no, we're doing this. And she puts a ping pong ball in her mouth and spits it out at him. And he catches it in his mouth like the and weirdest. then spits it back to her. And she catches it back in her mouth. And I'm like, what What the fuck? This is the weirdest game of beer pong I've ever seen. <laughs> and then seen. they make out with <laughs> the ball with the yeah. for a second. It's the weirdest uh, trust exercise I've ever seen. Yeah, <laughs> Very weird. But like that sets up the next part of the scene so well because it's this this levity that you're like what the fuck is going on like this is weird but it's this playful moment and then all of a sudden the camera pans forward through the windshield and there's this car on fire like zooming down, down the hill, the hill yeah. in front of them and just slams into some trees in the road in front of them and blocks the way and and all of these people just start just sprinting down the hillside attacking the car and they have to throw it in reverse and and just get backward as, as fast as they can. And then, like, immediately, Julian is shot, like, two shots. Like, blood goes everywhere. Yeah, she gets cracks shot in the neck. She's, like, hemorrhaging yeah. blood. Yeah. And through it, the camera is in the center. Even yeah. in the earlier scene where they're talking, the camera is kind of rotating around the center of the car to see the characters. They, they built a rig into the roof of the car to have the camera mounted from the roof, and it could be controlled remotely and Coron and Lubezki were on the roof of the car oh, while yeah, it was right. going and they could like control it and, and move it exactly where they needed to, to get all the shots. Yeah. Crazy. And then that, yeah, but the shot pays off. I'm sure it took, yeah, yeah it took a lot. And yeah, so it rotates around a couple of times, like seeing reactions, going back and seeing these guys throwing rocks and shooting and stuff. There's this motorcycle that comes down alongside them which then Theo, like, opens the door and just messes up that guy in the motorcycle. Yeah, he kills him. <laughs> yeah, he kills the yeah. one guy and throws the other guy, essentially goes flying. Um, and then, yeah, it's driving backwards, sort of all this chaos as they get away from it. And it just is, like... The windshield shatters as they're, like, turning the car around, yeah. so you almost don't even notice that they start turning around and going the other way. Yeah, but it, and it lasts... It's a couple minutes of a shot. It's like a right? five-minute yeah, long shot. Yeah. And then at the, shot. I don't know how they did this, but at the end, they get pulled over by the cops, and Luke gets out of the car and shoots the two cops, and the camera then pulls out of the car yeah. and follows Theo as he's arguing with Luke. And then the scene ends, and I was like, that must have been just some editing magic because I saw the, I watched the feature that showed the rig that they made to get all the stuff inside the car. And I was like, I don't know where the cut was. It looks yeah. so smooth. Everything is so clear. I don't know how they pulled that off. But and they, they do the same thing in the like later really long shot in the immigration uh-huh. camp where there's some very careful, really good there's digital There's one editing. that I noticed where there was a cut in that one. but It's easier yeah. to tell in that one. Yeah, Because like blood is the not on the blood's on the camera, on the camera and then it's not yeah. at the point. <laughs> so you know an edit happened. But... Um, 
in those long shots, they're not one long take shots. They're pretty long couple of shots. Right. But they're very seamlessly put together. And that's where the mm. editing really comes in is that there's a lot of those things that are just perfectly put together to where it, it you're gripped and stuck and you can't tell. It isn't the sort of obvious like, oh, it went by a post and I can just cut that out kind right. of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's it done go so well. And, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that kind of kicks off our initial like, this isn't going to go wheezy, right, of, like, all that kind of chaos. They go to the safe house. Theo now doesn't have Julian to understand what's going on. Not even sure. He's still not exactly sure why he's even there, what's going on. Um, and then Z, Key, I keep saying Z, I don't know why. <laughs> You're trying to trip me up. That's yeah, why. I'm going to keep throwing you <laughs> off. Key calls Theo back to the barn and says, oh, I, Julian told me you're the only one I can trust. I don't know what to do. And she takes off her clothes. She's surrounded by cows talking to animals. Yeah, again. he's like, oh, hey, yeah. don't do not do that. You yeah. don't need to do that. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And then she covers herself up. It shows that she's pregnant, uh, both evoking like a manger, right, of like the animals and her being pregnant. I didn't think about that. Yeah. yeah. And then like a Venus de Milo, the way she kind of stands and is, is yeah. pregnant. So again, these sort of like themes and ties that kind of come back. Um, and then that's when he's struck with like, oh, this is the cause. Like he, he, he says, Jesus Christ. Like, yeah. <laughs> is the opposite reaction that somebody in death promise would have. Yeah. He's actually shocked. Um, yeah. So he says like Jesus Christ and, and realizing it. Um, and that's when he kind of then is like kicked off to, to follow through with all this. Yeah. I want to um, make a quick note real yeah. quick, right before she shows him the naked, her naked body, um, she says something about the cows, about how like they, they the machines only up. get yeah. four nipples, oh, and so yeah. they cut off two of their nipples. Why can't they make a machine that has six? Eight and it's kind of eight nipples. They cut off four. Oh, they cut them in half. So yeah, and and it's just kind of that touch on like humanity doesn't want to adapt. Humanity wants to adapt nature to fit what humanity's construct currently is, mm-hmm. and yeah. kind of hinting back to like hey, here's all that stuff that we've built up that we keep holding on to and we don't want to change it or face what um, what change might be needed for it because it's too inconvenient for us. And uh, I don't know, just it was a, a good kind of aside right before that review. Yeah, yeah. there's, um, so there was a documentary on the Blu-ray that uh, Coron directed that was essentially like him interviewing all these economists and philosophers and scientists about like, the you know kind of the themes in children of men about like what's going to happen that's going to cause these massive migrations when global warming hits the fan or when income inequality gets even worse and like what's going to create all these driving factors and it was called the possibility of hope and it was like really fucking bleak (laughs) like i didn't really (laughs) see any possibility of hope in it but um so you're, you're talking about you know not adapting to nature and trying to force nature into what we're doing. Um, I feel like there's, there's a lot of these interesting themes in the background of the movie about like, why are we in this world? What, aside from the infertility, like what has created this mass migration problem, this mass inequality problem. And it's like, Oh, well, capitalism got out of hand and, uh, global warming. We've just completely ignored it and didn't do anything about it. And, um, it, it feels like, you know, there are a lot of, uh, you know, political messages here that aren't said up out front, but are very much implied by the world that he's showing and, and kind of where humanity has fallen. Yeah. yeah. You see like pollution 
in the back. Almost there's like yeah, poison there's like trash water, bags trash everywhere, bags. and yeah, you. Here, it's interesting that, that some of the people fall to religion because, like, at one point when Theo's talking to Jasper about the girl, he says, mm-hmm. like, oh, she was a repenter. Uh, yes, yeah. and then it was, it was Jasper's like, else. which one is that? Is that yeah. the, yeah, and he's like, no, Regressor that's the regressors or, or reformers. Yeah. or yeah. One of them, I think the repenters are the ones that he said sat on their, or got on their knees for a month and fasted, and then the yeah. the other one that she was were ones that, like, flagellated Self, themselves yeah. for the, the sins of humanity or yeah. something. Yeah, and you uh, see that kind of in the background again. He passes sometimes. There's a group of, of people with, like, signs, and they're, like, you know, religious, like, oh, this is our fault. We turn from God. Like, you see all these different people with these different reasons of where they've fallen, and, and you're presented with kind of all those possibilities but never really... A full answer, except that you kind of know, you kind of have a feeling in your gut. It's humanity's fault yeah. somehow, right? And I think that everybody reaches that conclusion. There's not really anyone that says or seems to feel like it happened. They all are like, well, right. humanity got us here. Like, we all know it's our fault somehow. It is interesting. Um, I, I thought there was a, a pretty interesting commentary on just kind of the ineffectiveness of religion in in these situations uh, with Miriam. I forget if it's after Julian's death or Jasper, a.k.a. hippie Michael Caine. Um, And she is, like, praying or or doing something. Yeah, Julian, she kind of gives the Yeah, yeah, after Julian's death. And um, Theo is like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, why do you think that would change anything? Like, this doesn't help our situation at all. And, And she's just, like, gripping on to... It's very unclear what her religion is. She seems like kind of a like, it's like Buddhist. hippie yeah, I think it's Buddhist. Buddhist thing, but also there seems to be some sort of Christian aspect to it. I don't, I don't really know, yeah. but um, you know, she, she's holding on to it for comfort because that's all that, that's all she has yeah. in that moment, and it it doesn't do anything to change the situation, but it helps her to deal with it a little bit better. And and um, I thought that was that was an interesting day. It was kind of a very quick moment but i was like it feels like there's a broader point here about um using religion to kind of like ignore what is is going on and and the uh human driven activities that are putting us in this situation kind of heading toward this dystopian environment yeah well it's weird though because it's both like you see a lot of different representations of religion some people that like you know cross themselves when they see the baby later in the movie you hear um, Miriam's character and Jasper use some Buddhist, some Hindu conversations and topics. Um, and But then, like, there's tons of religious imagery throughout it on purpose. And then, like, just names, like, being called fishes, right, yeah. or things like that that are named that way. So it, there's definitely, like, both this you, religion that you see people using maybe incorrectly or in not or it being something they're kind of clutching onto, but it's maybe not really helping them move forward. Uh-huh. But then Kiran's definitely painting this thing with, like, religious hope, I guess, religious sim- symbolism. Yeah, because they talk about holding faith and confronting, like, chance. And that was the whole conversation, right, between Jasper and Miriam was about how you can't just have faith and you surrender yourself to chance only, you become effectively nihilist and you're like, there's nothing matters. I don't care about any of it. But Mm -hmm. if you hold both at the same time and you use them to kind of counterbalance each other, it can help you 
parse and process more of your life and actually drive yourself forward. And I guess that's the difference between when we see Miriam doing any of her rituals, which Theo thinks are absurd, they're helping her comfort herself in this time of grief. But when we see these other people on the steps, you know, repenting for everything and saying that it's all because humanity turned away from God, they're still, they're weighing way more into like the faith aspect of like, Oh, if we had just there's been this I much better, yeah. like there's nothing I can do. It's the same thing of, um, I don't know, people kind of saying like, well, you know, Christ was divine. I could never be that divine. So there's not much more I can do for myself. Like mm. it's, it's washing your hands of it and saying like, we could have been better. Now we'll just do this. And that's the only solution we have. They're not really moving forward. They're just trying to look for an easy answer and a control, um, in that, in that environment. Um, kind of talking about religion and, and Miriam. Um, I thought there's a, a funny scene at, um, Jasper's compound where Miriam is like out the window outside doing some sort of like yoga thing and just like tripping over herself. Yeah. Like she's really bad at it. And, um, key asks, Theo, she's like, do you think she's suave? Which I thought was a very odd question. <laughs> and he turns to her and goes, I think she's earnest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's like, you know, he can at least appreciate it. He's, you know, he lashed out at her earlier and for her religious activities. And, and now he's kind of at least appreciating that she's, she's doing this to comfort herself and to, to try to find some way to deal with all this. And that's the only way that she can. And you almost feel some sense of um, like, like he wishes he had something like that, that he could kind of help to, to use to process what he's going through. And he's just so depressed and lost and, and nihilistic. And he's kind of coming out of that at this point. But um, yeah, I, I thought that that was a, a funny scene that, that had kind of an interesting glimpse into the characters. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of a sweet moment for him too. I think I smiled mm -hmm. when he said that it was like a bit of a chuckle and a bit of a like, Oh man, this guy, like he, he's not just, um, completely jaded. Yeah. There, there's those little like layers that are slowly unraveling to reveal, uh, kind of the, uh, the, the loyal dog underneath like who he really is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who he used to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jasper and his wife, you see again, you don't, that scene is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, but it's interesting uh. how you don't see their connection to Theo right out. Like they kind of mention it and you see the newspapers that show that he was a that Jasper was a political cartoonist and his wife was a journalist mm -hmm. and tortured. It's implied. Yeah, there was an article that said MI5 denies involvement in torture of prominent photojournalists. Like, oh, yeah. shit. And then she's and in a wheelchair and can't speak. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, as they, so Theo and Key and Miriam run away from the safe house when they find out the fishes are going to keep them there and use the baby to what ends. And they go to Jasper's, which he knows is a safe place of someone he can trust. And um, the fishes find them there. So they have this little, again, a moment of respite where Jasper talks about the past and how Julian and uh, Theo met and the baby they had. And, they, you know, a bit of a calm moment, a bit of all that. And then they, <laughs> Jasper listens to this really crazy music. I was yeah. like, oh, <laughs> yeah. music? That. yeah, his music is like trash music or whatever that's yeah. not even music kind of. You know, it's, it's just loud it's aggression. It's like screaming and smashing <laughs> yeah. on stuff. Yeah, Theo's like, oh, I have such a bad headache. And he's like, Michael Caine's like, you won't mind my, my Zen music then. It <laughs> yeah. starts air guitaring right, to this horrible metal music. Is, yeah. <laughs> and Theo just laughs. Yeah, like, he just laughs <laughs> about it. Um, yeah, so so Michael Caine's character, Jasper, is set up. I guess he knows this. They explain that he knows this guard 
at the like immigration camp because he sells weed to him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then he, and then I guess that guy's then sneaking into the immigration camp and reselling that weed and keeping some for himself or whatever. And so he set up this transfer where they can get snuck into the immigration uh, town because then on the other side is the coast where they can meet this boat. And then in the middle of the night, the fishes have found them, I guess, followed them somehow and are headed into their compound and, that's when the, that's what I just mentioned it because that crazy music plays again is like uh, the alarm yeah. that he uses. Yeah. Um, and so he gets the car ready and pretty much tells like Theo, Key, and Miriam, like, you guys go, I'll stay back and distract him. And they pull off and he has really howering, awful scene, like knowing Jasper's not gonna be okay as yeah. they leave. Yeah. And he goes in and gives Quietus to his wife and I think his dog and his dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seemed like Quietus is the the suicide suicide pills medicine. or whatever. And when they when they come to the compound uh, in, at the start of that, like the day before, um, he finds Jasper passed out in a chair with a box of Quietus box, next yeah. to him, and he's terrified yeah. that he's committed suicide. And then Jasper wakes up. He's like, "What? No, I just I just use it to kill the rats. It works great." <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so yeah, then you Theo stops and is overlooking it and sees Jasper come out. And kind of just like joke and kind of fuck with the guys a, a little bit or whatever, and they proceed to shoot him multiple times, seemingly killing him. Yeah. Um, and and then Theo drives off, and it kind of now we have this like repetition of someone sacrificing or dying in some way to sort of push this mm-hmm. forward, like continue to push this savior potential forward. Yeah. Yeah. I was to say the the that scene with with Jasper is just so. Uh, disquieting it's awful. And, and upsetting and, and really sweet at the same time you yeah. know, because it's like he knows that he's going to have to deal with these people and take a painful death and he is giving his wife a mercy killing and she can't even respond to say that she's okay with it he has to make the decision that he knows what's best for her and there's this really haunting cover of ruby tuesday by yeah. rolling stones going in the background it's sung by someone with a hispanic accent I'm, I'm not sure who did the cover but it was just a a really kind of hauntingly chill version of it that's playing over it and you get the sense that they put this on that that song on because that's what she wanted to hear when she yeah was, that's what she was liked dying. Yeah. yeah um and yeah just just a really an incredibly well done scene that is um just just tough to watch and a great job by michael kane in general and all the stuff he did but then that like where he's there sitting with his wife and you can see him like knowing he's having to do it not wanting to like taking the last moment and then like getting the resolve and like opening the box and moving forward yeah yeah and you hinted that um the relationship between jasper and theo is so sweet and you don't really know how they know each other, why they're friends. There's a big age gap. You're like, it's very unclear. Maybe back when Theo was younger and used to be involved in protests and stuff, maybe they connected through that at some point. But um, they have just such this this beautiful friendship that is um, probably the strongest relationship in in the film. And um, it's just uh, just fun to, any scenes with them together is just really fun to watch them them talk and banter. Yeah, the the, like few times we see Theo like laugh yeah, this is really emotion. the only time yeah. he seems to get any joy is is hanging out with with uh, Jasper. Yeah, and and I wanted to just take a side note and say there's a conversation earlier that they have about Quietus and how marijuana is still illegal to sell, right. yeah. but Quietus <laughs> is not, uh-huh. <laughs> which was just an interesting right. aside. Yeah. 
Um, another political statement. Yeah, another political <laughs> statement there. Um, but also I wanted to say that uh, this movie, along with Swiss Army Man, is the only one to make like a fart joke, something that's heartbreaking. Which <laughs> 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 is so weird to say that I, yeah, up, you got a drink. There we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> but just watching Jasper try to get these men to pull his finger. I was like, somebody do it. Just do it. Damn it. Nobody ever pulls his finger. He yeah. always pulls his he own. Always has yeah. to do it. it. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, seeing him. Yeah. When he's first shot and then he turns around and just says, fuck you to them and drops like basically all pretenses of the facade he was putting up. Yeah. I was like, yeah, fuck these guys. Like I'm 100%. It, it, well, then he know, says it just, again. Yeah, he says yeah, it again. Like, it no, much, no, pull yeah, my finger. Pull my finger. And they yeah. finally shoot him in the head. Because <laughs> yeah, they were just shooting him in his hand before. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that and this uh, that scene is also when Theo finally does look back. Like he's not just driving without looking back. He pulls the car over yeah. and watches it happen. And he confronts like all of the fucked up shit that's been happening effectively in that moment. Um, and then uses that as the fuel to push himself forward to make his sacrifice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And kind of knowing just, he has nothing. Yeah. It's interesting that he knows he has nothing to go back to. Like, I think that's what he feels when after Julian, he kind of breaks down and cries in the woods for a moment. He kind of walks away from all of them because I think he doesn't want them to seem upset, I guess. Yeah. He yeah. doesn't want to show that emotion. Then he kind of breaks down. I think while he acted like there wasn't anything there or they didn't necessarily want to be back with her, there was always the possibility. And then that ended in the same way, like, with Jasper dying, he knows that that's it. Maybe his last friend, like it's sort of all of this is now gone for him. Yeah. And I mean, that's also, even when he's crying in the woods, doesn't Miriam tries to comfort him at some point, right? She tries to touch him and he's like, don't fucking touch me. Like, yeah. Immediately, it's, it's, it's right in there. Right there. Yeah. 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 And so there's definitely that, like, don't drag me into, I don't want to confront this right now. I'm not going to deal with it. Yep. Um, yeah. And, and those scenes were so kind of powerfully built up that, uh, by the end of it, watching him um, row on that rowboat, like there was just so much that I felt from everything he had that had been sacrificed. Everybody else kind of it really built a pyramid of the efforts of everybody, like the core cast in it moving forward um, to that emotional climax of like, I didn't want to see him die on that boat. I knew I thought he'd been shot. I was pretty sure. And then mm -hmm. seeing it happen, I was like, oh, no. Um, and, and even then, like. We talk about the baby, the birthing scene. I don't know if y'all yeah. initially in your first yeah. viewing, Ryan, or not, but if you thought that the baby was stillborn, because I, I, did. I, I was 100% was like, oh, no. It didn't oh, move for no. two or three seconds. Yeah, yeah it doesn't take a breath right away. That's a, No, that's another of the long takes mm -hmm. is the birth scene. So I, this is after they get all the way into the immigration camp. They're staying the night. I guess to then the next day be able to go out to meet the boat. Yeah. Um, that scene is lit really interestingly too, because there's just one lamp in the back of the room and yeah. you can kind of see like the scenes backlit. So you can only see kind of the profiles of the characters and it, it's really well done. Like it, it makes it so you can see just what you need to see. And like the effects of the baby look realistic because there's not a ton of light. Coming yeah. In. Yep. Yeah. And they start out and then pan in more and as the cross, birth goes and across yeah. yeah until you get really almost intimate with it at the end my understanding is that they had like a prosthetic that she went into i guess right yeah and, and they cgi'd over the CGI'd prosthetic. over that and then with the cgi baby but even in 2006 the graphics were getting good enough that it probably was fine but it, adding the darkness just makes it 
yeah. you know, completely believable. It's like the, the rain yeah. for the T-Rex in Jurassic Park. Right, yeah, it's just, just like enough to cover it. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, for a moment, that baby comes out completely limp. And yeah, for a moment, you're like, oh, fuck. Like, yeah, yeah, this sort of loss of hope. And then it, like, takes a breath and cries and just, like, cuts the tension. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then immediately, like, the next day, right, Sid comes in. And yeah, <laughs> and the tension picks back up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, the fuck Sid is going wants on? to steal the kid, and then they're able to to get away, and that like embarks upon this next really long take that is six and a half minutes of just harrowing tension. Just <laughs> yeah. like one of the one of the best scenes. Yeah, that's the scene that, that blew I've me seen away in a long time. Like they are running out of one building, down a block, encounter a group of the fish terrorists, like almost die. Then another like group comes in and starts shooting at them, and they can escape. And Key gets away. Theo has to go track her down, dodging bullets, like jumping behind little obstacles and like partial walls as he's going. It almost feels like a video game sequence, like the way yeah. that he's kind of just jumping forward to the next thing he can hide behind. Um, and then gets inside the building and goes up two flights of stairs and encounters all these people and, and runs into Luke. And there's all this stuff in this one take. And then it abruptly cuts like when he's talking to Luke and it starts to do the back and forth. And when that cut happened, I was like, oh, God, like, I feel like I just got woken up from the, the dream. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that within that scene. There's constant. There's the stuff in the background, like you see people without limbs and like stuff that either right behind Theo blew up as he walked out of it or blows mm -hmm. up before he walks into it, and you see, right. you know, completely dead, nearly dead, mangled people. The orchestration and the timing of the action and the camera is just incredible. Like I, I have no idea yeah. how hard that must have been to pull off. Where like stuff explodes right before the camera passes on purpose, so you like don't have to see the big explosion effect, but you see the devastation. And the, and, yeah, and the people. Yeah. And, yeah. And then at one point in that, blood splatters onto the camera, like mm -hmm. the fake blood splatters onto the camera lens mm -hmm. and is there. Like for it kind of continues minutes. for a while. Yeah. yeah, and then it isn't until like a later kind of pass through the building where a cut happened. Yeah, they pan up in the building and they don't try to shadow it or go behind a post or anything and it's just, I don't know so why, the all gone. of a sudden yeah. the blood's gone. I was like, wow, that edit is incredible. So I don't smooth. know how they pulled that off. Yeah, and doesn't that scene, that scene starts with um, also Sid, the, the favorite person that speaks in the third person in this movie. <laughs> Dude, yeah. uh, <laughs> that was hilarious. Which, yeah, was he only spoke in the some, third person. Some levity. It um, seems like exactly the kind of guy that, that our Michael Caine Jasper became friends with. Yeah, he like fucks exactly. with Theo when he first uh, meets him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, <laughs> he's like, he's like when they're having that very somber sequence when Jasper is saying like, no, you guys leave and we'll stay. And Theo knows he's leaving him to his death. He's like, don't forget to call Sid a fascist pig. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. think he's just joking, <laughs> but then that becomes a very important code word that he has to say yeah. to Sid in order to get him, him to take a Which then Sid game. fucks with him and is like, what? Yeah. What did you yeah, call you me? me? What? Yeah. And he's like, ah. But you won't say it again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's like, ah, you already got me. Yeah. Um, but that, that scene, that extended run scene, doesn't that start with Sid's face? Oh no, wait, that's later, right? Sid's face gets bashed oh, in, yeah. which is horrific when it happens. Like, I mean, I wanted the dude to be hit and, and yeah, knocked down. That was yeah, before the running sequence Yeah, starts. yeah, because they're, yeah. they're trying to get to that one spot, right? Uh, or, or the yeah, so they get out of, they run out of the building thing. from Sid. Yep. Uh, the lady with the dog that helped them. Takes a baby um, and is yeah, it's like she, they find like a rich refugee's apartment or yeah, something. She yeah, she takes them to an ex-communist's like 
yeah. apartment or whatever. Yeah, but they get away from Sid. Yeah, there's like this fight through the door or whatever, and Sid's like shooting at him. And yeah, he just like, I don't know, picks up a battery, like a or, battery? A brick yeah. or something. Yeah, it smacks him in the head, just, oh, takes him out. Brutal. Yeah, definitely killed him. And then, yeah, she takes him to like a, some old lady's house, and she clearly used to be Stalin communist. Yeah. Um, and is now uh, oddly well off in this otherwise uh-huh. desolate immigration city where they've just dumped yeah, I don't everybody. know what her backstory is and how she's able to get that nice place where that's not constantly being attacked. You yeah. You think yeah. that, especially in a refugee camp, she actually has things that like she would just get raided all yeah. the time. Again, more of that world building. We're yeah. like, who is mm-hmm. this? Well, like, who knows? What is, is that a, yeah. yeah. Can we make a spinoff movie? About yeah. Her? yeah. <laughs> and then it's from there that they leave. And then they get, when they get attacked and by the fishes, that's when that that's scene, when that scene like all kicks that's off. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, which is cut then at the end with after his conversation with Luke, sort of this like last, like Luke is still trying to argue with him at this point. Luke's already probably shot too. It looked like, of yeah. like, no, I gotta let it have this baby. He's, well, he's still really insistent that the fishes have to keep the baby to get whatever political ends they're trying to get out of it. And he has this just heartbreaking conversation with, with Theo about how like, you know, I carried the baby up here and I forgot how beautiful they were. I hadn't yeah. seen one in forever. They're so small. Like, and then he's like, we need him. We need him. We need the baby. And, and Theo's like, it's a girl, man. And he goes, I had a sister like reminiscing. Yeah. Like you could tell like she's dead and he's reminiscing about, you know, his, his childhood and then just gets fucking he's shot. Like, blown up. Yeah. I think yeah. does he get hit by like, a, yeah, he's blown up. He shoots at Theo first, right? Before yeah, he shoots at Theo's his own way. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, the baby's crying through this and that's when it like suddenly kind of freezes. It's everyone. Starts like an armistice day thing. Yeah. Like everyone that's in there, the refugees and stuff are like all enraptured by the baby crying. And then the, I'm guessing it's like British military that was, who was attacking these fishes, like start to come in the building. And then the guy sees the baby and he's like, cease fire, cease fire. And then like everyone freezes. And as they walk out with the baby, like all the refugees, all the soldiers are all just, don't know how to comprehend. It's been 18 years from anything. Mm-hmm. You just see on all their faces, like, oh my God, baby. Baby Diego. Yeah, baby Diego. <laughs> Forget baby Diego. <laughs> yeah. Baby yeah. who? Yeah, they're all sort of blown away. Broly? And, yeah, Broly. <laughs> yeah, the names that she keeps telling Bazooka? <laughs> um, as they finally, like, they walk past the end of it, and then, like, all hell breaks loose again. Mm-hmm. It goes right back to it. But this, like, moment, yeah, of armistice or rep- respite over this baby that sort of all people can agree on that yeah. right even if they have these disagreements of whatever politics or religion or whatever that they all can like still see a baby as a baby as as something to be protected regard like not even needing to know the situation just it's a baby yeah and then yeah from there they go and get into the rowboat again the lady that's now been helping him there Gypsy or whatever she's is, yeah. I guess. Uh, Mar- Romani, Marika, I think it was yeah. Marika. Uh, yeah. Um, is like, nope, you go in the boat. I'll stay here. And then we see that get blown up. <laughs> no, that she didn't make it out of that. Yeah. And then uh, a, earlier, Miriam had been taken off the bus and thrown in with the immigrants that looked to be executed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, Theo rose out, shows that he's wounded. And for a moment there, you're left with like the whole time. Darla watched this with me. She's like, there's not gonna be a boat. She's like, it's not going to happen. Like, through the whole movie, you're yeah. constantly left with this, like, are we going to get to Nobody like, thinks a, the human project is real. Yeah, it's not and, real. There's yeah. nothing there, or they're too late, or whatever. Uh, sort of the same feeling we had about Sorcerer. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, the film is testing your faith. 
at that point. Yeah. Like, will you believe in this? Or are you going to believe that that's going to be there? And I, yeah, I didn't know. I wasn't going to say no, but I was like, yeah, I really hope, really? especially after coming this far that there's like, something I still have. Yeah. yeah something. I mean, I had already seen a baby that I thought was dead. So I was kind of <laughs> like prepped. Yeah. <laughs> to be yeah. And then as key and the baby are sitting there in the boat and Theo's dead and they're just stuck in this rowboat in, in the ocean, the boat kind of comes up out of the fog and you do see that it says tomorrow on the side of it, which is what they said mm. was the name of the boat of the human pride. And obviously it showed up where it's supposed to show up, right? but that's it. It cuts yeah. and you hear kids crying and playing and whatever after that. So you sort of have this impression of, yeah, that it does go somewhere better produce yeah. again or something, but yeah. it doesn't tell you that again, no left to your own thoughts. I kind of was was hoping that there wouldn't have have been a boat because I feel like the movie is so bleak and and nihilistic and just like this is where we are going, this is what we are doing to ourselves, we are are doomed to self destruction as a species through all the activities that we're going through, and then I, f- I feel like it would have been a more powerful ending if there's they're just she's just sitting there and waiting for like five or ten seconds and then it just cuts and it and it ends. You know, I think it's it feels like trying to shoehorn in a, a happy ending at the last second to like make it not feel so oppressive. And I understand why they would have done that. Like they want people to walk out of the theater, not hating themselves, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I feel like it, it was almost counter to the message of, of the rest of the film. I don't know. Cause I, I do think that, I do think that the point is that there, I guess the, the only reason for existing or living is this future, right? This possibility yeah. of a better future is the only reason to do anything. It seems to be the way that people kind of act. That's why they sort of have just given up everything and are, they all know it's going to end and it's all gone to shit. And as they start to see this possibility of it going well again, all of these people come together and have this force to kind of yeah. push things forward. And that these people sacrifice themselves now because it's not in vain, right? Like Julian putting herself out there, Jasper sacrificing himself, Miriam probably, honestly, she stands up and sacrifices herself, like yeah. gets in, right yeah. into the cop's face so that she gets taken away, the lady pushing him out onto the boat, like all of these people, and then Theo himself, only now acting in the interest of humanity because there is more beyond them. And I think then the, mo- the end of the movie is giving you that, like, maybe we could do something. Maybe there is something more that you could put yourself behind. Yeah, I can see that. And that's actually, you know, a a pretty powerful takeaway. If if the idea of the film is like, this is where we're headed. We, if we do want to survive, these are the things we have to do. We have to stop killing each other. We have to stop accelerating global warming and wealth inequality, all these things that are leading to this dystopian world that, that the movie is in. Yeah, less focus on the now, more focus on like the future, right? Mm-hmm. Like move, look towards the a better future, a possible future. Yeah, yeah. It's a shift away from from individualism into a more communal and utilitarian thought process of yeah. like, mm-hmm. here's what could benefit us if we actually can put things aside. With it being open ended, it's just as viable a reading to say like nothing's going to happen on that human project boat. Like you could also just as right. easily be yeah. like, well, who knows that that's going to go well. Or that this is the only baby and that things will be okay and it's fixed. Like, maybe it is the only baby, right? So you're not really given... It's still a very... Yeah, it's a thin thread 
of yep. hope to, to grasp to, because we've already seen the fish had plenty of promise for a point. They were set up to be great. And then they weren't as, as they were kind of still corrupted by ideology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it, you could have the same kind of reading from it, but yeah, I get, I get your point, Dixon. Um, it's interesting too, John, you're talking about shifting to a more communal ideology and that being a way that we can actually, uh, overcome these, these obstacles that are in front of us. And like, uh, you know, if you, if you look at American history, I think that's when we've been successful as a country is when we've had a more communal mindset. You look at like the new deal and things like that. And I think, um, the space race is a really interesting thing to look at right now as a way that like, you know, kind of the epitome of late stage capitalism being (laughs) stupid. And like, you know, we went to space in the sixties and then, you know, Jeff Bezos barely gets into orbit and there's like news anchors crying yeah, and saying it, yeah. that it's like, oh, we'll remember this day forever. And it's like, what the fuck? We did this in yeah. the 60s. <laughs> like, you know, but because of this individualistic uh, society that we have and just this like hyper capitalism, it's just like, you know, oh, well, now this is all we can do. And it's celebrated as this wonderful thing. It's like, no, when we've had communal efforts in the past to accomplish things, we can be a lot more successful than having this really fragmented society that is just fully reliant on stockholder returns. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the contrast there is, you know, for, for like a Jeff Bezos or, um, uh, is it Richard Branson? Uh Yeah. 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 For, for them, it's like a, a projection of like, I did this and you can too. It's still individualistically framed, but for like NASA going to the moon, that's very much like a, we did this. Uh, albeit it was like politically competitive. We were like, we're going to sure. do this before the Ruskies do. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that kind of, but it was still like very much a, we are going to do this together uh, and technologically it's going to change a lot of things for everybody. Um, and here's, here's like what it would do, but now it's being sold as like a, a dream, you know, like, Oh, you can do it. You can mm-hmm. do it. Anybody can do it. Um, a man who bought his own Island for his girlfriend, they yeah. weren't even married yet, <laughs> <Yeah>. wants <laughs> you to know that you too could go to space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that, that's also like an interesting framework to look at our current problems through like, like climate change and, and all these things. It's like, Oh, we could do a massive national program and and try to like get other countries involved too to to you know do some really serious climate change initiatives and that actually create jobs and are successful for working class people and all these things um you know like we went to the moon we can fucking do that if we want to yeah but it's so privatized where it's like well amazon's like well we're we're doing we're in, in the standards that the government has set what do you want from us we're we're doing everything we're supposed to do yeah. and in, instead of actually trying to set our sights on higher goals and to solve these problems that will keep us from falling into this dystopia. It's interesting that you bring that all up because this definitely is a movie that is like a post-capitalism, right? That instead of putting their resources to trying to figure out the future, it seems like Britain has gone completely totalitarian and everyone else has just been like, well, I got to look out for me. Yep. Right. Almost in the same way you, you were talking about inside where the social, you know, the, the, socialist ideals, liberal ideas we had last year have given way to like, I just want to make it to tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's exactly what this movie is, is like whatever activism that Jasper and Theo and Julian had is gone. And they're just like, yeah, I'm going to hang out and smoke or I'm going to drink or whatever. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, so all of that bleakness, (laughs) uh, in, in, in standing, um, would you recommend this, Ryan? I mean, that's why I picked it. I, I, this is one of the, this is one of my favorite movies. And this is definitely one of my favorite movies where I, like when I mention it, people are going to like, what? 
what is that? (laughs) And yeah, but I'm like, no, it's, it's, I think one of the standout movies, I think now that Kiran has gone on and had more success that this is definitely one to go back and look at, um, as well. And, and really, like you said, that from a cinematography and editing standpoint, people worked on that as well. This is all them kind of getting the things going Mm -hmm. that now we know them for. Um, yeah, like you see what Lubezki did in Birdman and The Revenant, and yeah. and like he, there's just so many things that I'm like, oh, I know, I haven't seen this movie before, but I know this shot because I have seen him do this in later films and finally get recognition for it. Like he he won back to back to back Oscars with uh, Gravity, uh, Birdman, and The Revenant three years in a row. Yeah. yeah, and like I was like, oh, okay, like you know, he didn't get recognized for this, which like I think Pan's Labyrinth won that year, which is the movie is. It's it's well shot. It's it's a but right. like this is doing shit that nobody had ever doing. done yeah, before. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I think from from a movie making aspect, I think that's great. From a like movie plot aspect, like you said, Dar- Darla watched this with me as well. We were traveling for twenty two hours straight Ugh. on Saturday, <laughs> um, and like slept until noon on Sunday, and. She was like, I don't know if I could stay up to watch something. And she was gripped enough and, and watched it all the way through and kind of had those same questions of like, well, what's going on? What is this in the background? Like, he kind of was also kind of into it. And then at the end was like, yeah, that was interesting. That was profound. Like, definitely something to think on. Um, sort of the same discussion. So I think, yeah, I think anybody can watch this even beyond just the movie making. Like, it's a gripping plot. It keeps you interested. Um, I think the acting is good. Maybe the characters are thin, but I think because it's not necessarily that it's not a character piece it's yeah it's not about the individual yeah it's much more sci-fi and i think from a sci-fi aspect which is part of also i like it like i think it's a great science and julianne moore and michael kane are are really great they're really good and i think um clive owen is is he does what he needs to do right for sure yeah Yeah. but yeah i absolutely recommend yeah uh i I thought this was great definitely definitely would highly recommend i think we've been talking about you know uh, so a lot of the darker ideas of the film that are kind of in the background of a lot of these scenes. And I just want to make it clear to people listening that this movie is actually really fun. It's like a really tense thrill ride throughout that you're kind of like gripped to the screen on the edge of your seat as it, the movie just keeps moving and moving and moving and you're constantly um, just going, moving on to the next scene and and experiencing new terrors (laughs) as it goes. And so it's a lot of fun to watch. So I I don't want people to think like, Oh, this is going to be a slog. It's dealing with, dystopian uh depressing shit no it's it's actually really engrossing to watch yeah um i'm gonna be the third pylon for recommending it uh it makes me ashamed that i own speed racer and not this movie on (laughs) blu-ray uh (laughs) but yeah pretty much everything that has been said here i i absolutely echo i don't have much else to add um so i just say yeah i recommend it um, thanks for picking it, Ryan. Good job, Ryan. All right. <laughs> yeah, you did it. You brought us back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And with that, we'll take a break. What I want to say thank you to our sponsors today's podcast, Flim Flam Mattress. If you've listened to this podcast for a long time, you know I'm not a big fan of traditional mattresses. That's because I've been using Flim Flam Mattress. Previous mattresses I've used were too firm for my back or made me lay awake contemplating the inevitability of my demise. <laughs> They're just too soft. I've been using Flim Flam during the required 1,928-day trial and have had the best night's sleep in years. I definitely have not had dark dreams from beyond that I wake up covered in sweat. I like it so much I bought it for the whole family and my neighbors and my neighbor's neighbors. 
It's spreading through my community, and now they're part of something bigger than they can understand. How is Flim Flam able to provide such amazing rest at low prices? Well, it's in their innovative technology that was developed by our glorious leader to open our eyes to what lies beyond comprehension. You'll rest easy knowing that you've not thrown your money away on those other online mattress ripoffs. Flim Flam wants to sacrifice the middleman and bring this mattress and sanity directly to your door. And you're too weak to say no. We have an exclusive deal for 20% off right now if you use our special code, Cult of the Bloody Tongue. That's right, 20% off any purchase. It's an amazing deal you won't find anywhere else. Act fast and go to Flim Flam Mattress slash Cult of the Bloody Tongue to get that 20% off. Strike these demons out. Yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, no like, was going that's like when you play golf, you got to be in like the right beer zone. You know, it's yeah, like you yeah, want to yeah. be like two to four beers in to get the right amount that's of relaxation, but like not too drunk. And I don't know how that translates to LSD, but I, I, I <laughs> love that right, he threw a no hitter on yeah, LSD. What's the right amount of LSD to yeah. pitch a game? <laughs> oh my God. It's awesome. All right. And we're back with Recommend or Refute. You know the rules. We will recommend or refute a movie to you. If we recommend it, we give you some valuable time with film. If we refute it, we save you from horrible amount of time with film. Movies that could be worse than Death Promise even. Ooh, oh. Campfire Scary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so, Ryan, you were the picker, uh, and I would like for you to, to kick us off. Cool. I'll kick us off. I need a, another Corona. Uh, to family. Nice. Of course. Family. Um, <laughs> I'll pass that around. Yeah, here we yeah. go. Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely refute. Ah, you're going to need that Corona. Yeah, here we go. It's, it's like, I, like I said, like, Too so many I had. Coronas. There you go. There we go. Um, nope. <laughs> there you go. I had time on a flight, so I get to watch movies when I'm flying. Finish Doc. Um, and like I've said before, when I have time to watch families and not with my family, I watch bad movies. Um, you said when you have time to watch families and what, you're not watch with your movies family? away with my family. <laughs> That's how messed up his brain was on the flight. <laughs> Just staring at families on the flight. Hey guys, don't mind yeah. me. What are uh, you watching? Yeah. <laughs> um, that will come around because there were some families watching the movie I was watching and I didn't feel good about it. <laughs> um, but I did pick, so I picked a new movie that I saw on Netflix. I didn't know one way or another, but I was like, well, here's something new and it popped up. So I watched Gunpowder Milkshake. I've heard terrible things. I've seen the ad for that, and it looks just awful. <laughs> I should have watched an ad, maybe. I don't know. I've heard nothing um, about this. I've heard nothing. Yeah, about it. it wasn't awful. <laughs> I guess I'll start off. You sound like you're not sure if it was awful. Okay, it wasn't like good. Either. Between Space Jam and Death Promise, or just above Death Promise? It was kind of, I will actually say. Well, he didn't see Space Jam. Oh, yeah, I didn't see Well, we Space told Jam. you. You didn't tell me. We elucidated. <laughs> it was an F. It's real bad. <laughs> um... This was kind of like a better death promise. Oh, okay. It had some it definitely had some like going after and killing people, you know, I guess promising to kill them kind of deal. So <laughs> yeah, I looked at it and I was like, Oh, it looks like sort of a Did it have a funky violent, theme exciting. song? No, no. not at all, actually. That would have actually that's death better than promise. death promise. Yeah. <laughs> Got about a milkshake. Um, <laughs> so th- this stars Karen Gillian, mm-hmm. Lena Hetty, Carla Guguino, Angela Bassett. Damn. And Michelle Yao. So I was like, okay, that's interesting. And it looks like mm-hmm. kind of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Too much of a good thing. Poor usage of all of them. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it it feels like a movie that has some really interesting ideas. It was very stylish. It kind of just doesn't figure out how to put them together and execute in a way that ends up being compelling. 
Um, basic plot: Karen Gillian is a a a hitman, hitman woman. Um, her mom, I guess, previously was for some sort of mysterious group, the firm, um, and her mom, for some reason, ran off after like betraying the firm or doing something, refusing to kill. Something. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Okay. They never explain it really anyway. Um, that's about as important as that is. <laughs> um, and so then I guess uh, Karen Gillian's character, Sam, is left to just sort of bring herself up and just falls into the same line of work. And at the beginning of the film, she is on some cleanup where she has to kill some people and ends up being a whole bunch of them. And it turns out that one of the people that she kills is some other important mobster's son, even though the firm sent her to do it. And at the same time after that mission is over and they're finding out that they killed the wrong guy, she's sent to another cleanup job where some guy stole money from the firm. Some accountant has stolen money from the firm. She goes to find the accountant, shoots him in the stomach in sort of an argument, and then, but he's like trying to answer the phone. And as he answers the phone while he's kind of sitting there bleeding, these blackmailers are like, well, we have your daughter. You need to bring the money uh, to us to get your daughter back. And then Sam, I guess, has a, some kind of conscious, I guess, and decides to go after the guys and get the kid back. I think feeling bad that she's almost killed her father and maybe leaving her to the same kind of like poor upbringing. You know, okay. again, like light themes kind of lazily put on there where they're pretty obvious. Yeah. Um, oddly, it starts off with like some cool that she first meets and does some of the deals in this like diner that clearly is like four mobsters and you have to like leave your gun at the front and they have like code words. Like this is where the milkshake stuff uh, comes in okay. and it's like a neutral ground to meet on and everything's like super neon and stylized. So at the beginning of this, I'm like, Okay, it's kind of cool. The violence is, like, so violent that I was a little bit, like, I had to kind of block my screen a little yeah. bit on the airplane because I was like, oh, no, some of the kids back here in this row behind me might be watching <laughs> this movie. Yeah. And it is violent, like, but to the, like, Tarantino. it's less awkward than the nudity on an airplane. Yeah, That's right, yeah, at least they weren't having yeah. sex. Um, <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like Tarantino level, like, comedic, over-the-top violence kind of stuff. Um and so then she goes to save this girl. The money ends up getting blown up in the chaos of it. So now the firm is pissed that they lost their money and she wants to protect this girl. And pretty much the rest of it is just like that. Like she's trying to protect it and they're just killing people. And then she gets angry and goes and kills all the people at the firm. And like whatever was interestingly set up kind of never really pays off. The fight scenes are actually interesting. They're not well choreographed. Not as bad as Death Promise. I was going to say, it's just like Death Promise. <laughs> not as bad as Death Promise, but not enough to be like... You can't see two feet of space between yeah, fist yeah. and face. Yeah, not that bad. Yeah, not that bad. Um, but not to John Wick level, which I think this really wants to be, but oh. really is not. Um, she... They're, like, the first fight scene she has, they have characters. Like, these guys that chase her have characters. Another problem that Death Promise has... Like, she has these guys that come after her, and you kind of know, like, oh, this is a heavy, this guy's this kind of fighter, fights with knives or whatever. Like, they all kind of have these characters. You're like, okay, I kind of know who this guy is pretty quickly. Here's my wrestling reference. Where you know, like, right off the bat when the guy walks in, you're like, Cheers. oh, this is a heel. Yep. This is this kind of guy. <laughs> and so they knew that. That's something that Death Promise missed, missed, right? I mentioned that before. Like, they don't know how to make the fight seem like the person might lose and then come back. And they yeah. had that kind of compelling fight choreography. 
Um, there's a cool scene where they're in this dentist's office, quote unquote, which is where you take people that are like, you know, oh, I've been shot. Don't take me to hospital. You take them to this dentist's office uh, okay. and they have mm-hmm. code words and you take them back and there's the patch doctor. Like uh, uh, Breaking Bad. Like yeah. With the uh-huh. vet. Yeah, yeah. Like with the vet. Yep. Um, the the dentist guy ends up getting paid off by the firm. And so he comes in and he like stabs Karen Gillian with like a numbing agent or whatever that causes her arms to, to numb out. And then these three mobsters in the firm are going to come after her. And so she literally tapes scalpels to her hand and then tapes a gun to the other hand and then goes out in the hallway and has this, like, arm flailing, like, <laughs> shooting and, like, cutting them with scalpels. Meanwhile, these are the guys that she beat up earlier in the movie, and they've all gotten high on laughing gas in the dentist's office. And one of them's, like, in a wheelchair, and one of them has, like, a crutch. And so they're, like, laughing and, like, unable to... And the whole time I was, like, sitting there being, like... This is great. This is so <laughs> dumb and so violent and so great. But the dialogue is so stilted. The jokes never quite land. So it has these really interesting ideas like that. When she runs away from that, she can't drive the car since so she can move her legs. So she puts the kid in her lap and she works the pedals and the kid turns and moves it into reverse and drive. And they end up having like a car chase scene in the like parking garage where the kid is like doing the turns and she's telling what to do and like telling the girl, like close her eyes and then like shooting the people. Oh and my God. like, again, like I'm like sitting there being like, this is awesome. Like that's awesome. But it, yeah. that's about it from there. It kind of all goes downhill <laughs> yeah. and never really hits anything. So it, I was initially like kind of getting into it and then it just sort of was like, all right, I know where this is going. Like yeah. get to the end. And then the girl finds out that you killed her dad and you all feel bad about it, but she gets over it and then you go kill everyone at the firm. And there's nothing, you know, it's like, you just know pretty early on what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and it's just a poor use of like, Carrie and Gillian just has this like really weird stilted way of talking through all of it. That just is odd. Like they just did these weird script reads. Uh, Lena Hetty could be cool, but isn't she like kind of comes in and just like, oh, I'm here. I'm I'm your mom to save the day. So the delivery is about that. Um, and then uh, Carla Guino, Angela Bassett, and Michelle Yeoh are these librarians. Okay. Because you go to the library and you make a deposit <sighs> and then you get okay. a book and it has a gun in it. Yeah. Like, again, there's like, okay, interesting. And they, like, help defend yeah. the library from these gangsters coming in. And, again, like, it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't quite make enough sense. Like, they have these things that seem like they're going to be cool fight scenes, but they just aren't. Yeah, it sounds like, level. like a, a lower version of John Wick. Exactly. Yeah, like it's think. like above Death Promise, so, below John Wick. That is the closer. Yeah, it's probably closer to that Death yeah, Promise level. Tell, okay, and, that's where the crampon is in the chasm. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and it, I wish it would pick a direction and either go like get some competent fight choreography and a better script and move towards John Wick or mm-hmm. give up and go full chaos down towards Death Promise. Yeah, actually, and if it was a Death Promise that like was competent. Like it had higher yeah. production value. Right, had, yeah. Which it does. It has mm-hmm. clearly has some money and some some you know great actresses in it. Then great. Like go that way and just be that. Uh, but it kind of wavered between the two and never really nailed either it one. It actually sounds not between but like not between in terms of quality, but it sounds between Harley Quinn's Fantabulous Emancipation, whatever birds of prey, and uh-huh. John Wick. Like it sounds like a mix of that kind of Yeah. 
there's a. It sounds like it's worse than both. Though. I know that's like, what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, Birds of Prey is like, a good. In, I thought it was a good. In terms movie, of the like, content, though, that sounds yeah. like what it's mixing is like, oh, there's an underground assassin world, and then there's this like sibling kind of surrogate sibling yep. situation, yeah, mm-hmm. going on, and and the sort of style like it it was stylized right in Who Birds of Prey, directed? but it never. I don't know. I oh, I looked down. it up. It was some random dude I'd never okay. heard of that yeah. hadn't really the, done anything. The name sounds like like I want to be Edgar Wright or I want to be it, and it, kind of. I think it also wanted to be that. Like it definitely had a feeling of like an Edgar Wright kind of thing. But again, <laughs> yeah. Why is it called really Gunpowder Milkshake? Because of the code word uh, in the, the yeah. She bar, drinks right? a milkshake, and it's that's like, like the, something. Wait, in did the you bar. see it? No, no, I, mean, no, I said that talking earlier. About <laughs> how like they use milkshake as a code word. Or yeah, something. like she drinks a milkshake. In <laughs> I was hoping that like somebody actually drank a milkshake no, with gunpowder gun in it or something, no. and then, like breathed milkshake fire or something. <laughs> they, they have a big fight. They just get bad indigestion. Yeah, right. They have a big fight scene at the end in the diner, and I guess some gunpowder maybe gets in a milkshake. Yeah, who knows? Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, my understanding is that this has already got a sequel coming. Like, this is one of oh, those. Oh, really? Netflix oh. put some money behind it, obviously got a good cast behind it, and threw a ton of money, and they don't really care if it's good or not. That's it's something to put on their platform. I, I've heard a few other people tell me they saw it and that they hated it, and it has a 51% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, so it doesn't seem like people are into it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's probably weird. a C minus. Like, yeah. you, you know, it's not, off, it's not awful. Mm-hmm. It's, like, not even a D. It's sort of competently put together, and it has some moments that are kind of entertaining, but it, yeah, it just sort of never gets good and never gets bad and i wish it went one way or the that other i i hate like the movies that, like that's why i hate like marvel that's why i hated black widow right it's because it's just that like we're just gonna yeah. be really boring and safe and do stuff that is not interesting at all and that that's yeah. like i would much rather watch a train wreck than watch something that just tries to play it safe and is boringly bad yeah yeah well and it has that same yes yeah, speaking of black widow it has the same thing where i feel like it's trying to be feminist women first positive Uh, yeah but doesn't i think because i doubt it has like someone who's actually sitting down like with experience with that trying to present it in a good way which actually i think bird of prey birds of prey Mm -hmm. does without being like in your face about it where this one has a bit of that plot of like well they don't trust you know trust us or they look down on us or whatever and the same thing with um uh black widow where I think it's better if you just were like, they're competent and it's just that they are. Like, why right, Why do you yeah. have to lampshade it of like, well, and she's a woman. It's like that immediately undercuts it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a pass. It may be if they read the feedback before they make the sequel and they realize like, oh, we should just make this over the top and just go for an over the top violent ridiculous thing like a Tarantino yeah. uh-huh. movie, yeah. then they would, it would be a lot better. Yeah, like what Space Jam 3 should be. Yeah, Space exactly. Jam 3. Yeah. Over-the-top violence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Make it for the audience it's for, damn it. Yeah, that's uh, what we want. <laughs> yeah, the the um, constant code words that you keep using in the movie remind me of, uh, there's like a segment in a family guy or something where they go into a pet store and they have mobsters set up the oh, pet yeah, store. Yeah. And he's like, it's one of those things where like the dialogue is so stilted and blatantly obvious that it's, it's the joke where he's like, I would like a bunny. And the guy's like, what kind of bunny, a semi-automatic <laughs> bunny or a handheld bunny. <laughs> yeah. And he's like a bunny that's good for taking my friend out in the head. And it's just like, <laughs> all right, here's your bunny. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
I want a revolving bunny. <laughs> yeah, that's almost exactly the scene where she goes to get guns from the library. <laughs> oh, that sounds that sounds not not great. Yeah, no, so it's a pass. It's it's interesting to be looking at Karen Gillan's career because she like got quote unquote famous in the Marvel movies like Guardians of the Galaxy and Avengers and stuff, but she's just like a blue person who you can't you can't really tell what she looks like and now studios are trying to make her into a star but like nobody recognizes her in these movies and they like a lot of people love that character in the marvel movies but then they people put her in this or in like jumanji or different stuff and they're like oh is this some newcomer who the fuck is that yeah right <laughs> you know, like, the star power do doesn't there. transfer over because she's in like six pounds of blue makeup in yeah. all of the marvel movies i will i will say like having her against the rest of this cast i kept constantly being like wow she's really tall like every time oh, really? she's standing next to somebody else is like wow she's really tall like she's so much taller than the rest of this cast it was weirding me out all right, Dixon. Cool. Uh, so yeah, um, John and I did uh, kind of a, a recommend and refute swap this week, where uh, we both lent the other person a, a Blu-ray of, of a movie that we uh, owned, and the other person hadn't seen. So uh, John let me borrow um, her, and I lent uh, John New York, New York. So I'm going to talk about her. Um, written and directed by Spike Jones, uh, came out in 2013, starring. Joaquin Phoenix, Amy Adams, uh, Scarlett Johansson, and uh, uh, Rini Mara. And uh, it essentially is it's kind of about like love in the 21st century and kind of how isolation creates kind of a weird environment and um, just makes relationships in general, even non-romantic ones, very different in um, kind of the 21st century. It seems to be set in the not too distant future. I'm not, I don't think it's really clear on when it's actually set, but Joaquin Phoenix is um, divorced. Uh, Rudy Mara is his ex-wife and he's kind of having trouble getting over that relationship and is struggling to sign the divorce papers because he doesn't want to admit that that's not going to work out. Um, and he um, you know, he's 11 years older than Rooney Mara, but they like grew up together and went to college together. So, you know, typical, typical Hollywood, uh, not, not stuff quite there. Jimmy Stewart level. Though. No, not yeah. quite that bad. We're getting a little bit better as, as time progresses, <laughs> but, um, so he, you know, he has all this attachment to Rooney Mara's character and doesn't want to give up on that relationship and is really depressed and, and kind of in denial when we start the movie. Um, and then he, uh, he works at a handwritten letter writing service where people will hire his company to send handwritten letters, which he just dictates to his computer and then prints out. Yeah. And he will have customers that he's been writing letters, letters for for years. And so he knows a little bit about them. And so he can write these really heartfelt, convincing letters that sound like they're coming from you know, one, the, the boyfriend to the girlfriend or whatever the relationship is. Um, he, he's really talented at, at, you know, writing greeting cards, essentially. And um, then, you know, he's basically just, he's just super lonely and just, you know, kind of goes home and watches TV and doesn't really have much of a life because he's depressed and getting over his, his divorce. Um, and then he sees an ad for an AI operating system and decides to buy it and he decides to set the voice to female who is then uh, played by scarlett johansson and the operating system um is you know learns and can like read through his emails and set his calendar and things like that and they start to have a recurring dialogue and end up 
having a romantic relationship between a human and a computer. Um, so that that's the basic premise. I I thought it was was really great. Um, it reminded me thematically a little bit of Inside around kind of the ideas of of isolation and and struggling to connect with people and to find love in an environment where, um, you know, we're just a bit disconnected. And obviously in inside it's forced disconnection through pandemic and quarantine. And in, in this, it's just uh, natural disconnection through technology invading our lives. Um, a lot of the scenes you see Joaquin Phoenix walking and talking to Scarlett Johansson, the AI, and you see all the people in the background of each shot are also just in their phones or talking to their own AI yeah. and none of them are interacting with each other. And it's this, this really dystopian idea. Um, it doesn't get super dark with it. Like I, I thought it was going to be like some sort of scheme by a, a massive tech company to get everybody's data and they were going to use <laughs> yeah. it to, you know, bomb them with ads or something like that. But th that's not where it goes. It, it really stays in this idea of the struggle for, for humans to find companionship and, um, you know, kind of the uh, leading to, since they can't connect with each other, connecting with, with AI, which is, is, you know, kind of doomed to fail because of, of obvious <laughs> reasons why that yeah. kind of can't work out. Um, meanwhile, he is, has one of his best friends is, is played by Amy Adams. She lives in the same building and she goes through a divorce and ends up befriending an AI also, not in a romantic way, um, just in, uh, as a friend. So they're kind of going through these things together. Um, and you kind of want them to get together, but they just kind of have their separate relationships. Um, thought it was a, a really interesting commentary on kind of the human condition in the 21st century with the technology that we have at our disposal and the, uh, good things it provides and the, the, detriments that it has on our social ability and our, our willingness to interact with each other. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, interested to hear your guys' thoughts. I know, John, you've definitely seen it. It looks like, yep. Ryan, you've seen it yeah, as, John as well. also showed me this, so yeah. I hadn't uh, had a chance to see it, and we watched it, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I showed that to um, uh, my first job. I showed it my first job as a movie club. The first movie club movie that I showed. <laughs> oh, that was the first. Yeah, that was the first I one. The yeah, first yeah. one to a bunch of people that did not know me. Uh, and there's a scene with, like, and you're like, Hawking isn't this Phoenix movie about fucking your computer yeah. cool? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's that scene where Hawking Phoenix is masturbating and thinking about a pregnant woman. And then that oh, woman asked yeah. him to choke her with a dead cat. And like all that just hit these coworkers of mine that did not know who I was or what I was about. <laughs> and I was like, this I'm John just going to sit here. Some weird shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I also took my, this is like one of the only movies that in my adult life, I like suggested to my mom, we go see it. And it was one of the moments where I was like, I want to share this with my mom because I feel like this movie resonates with me in a way where it's so melancholy and sentimental, uh -huh. um, especially compared to, I think, Ex Machina came out around the same time. And that is the complete, it's the the kind of yin-yang complement uh, to each other where Ex Machina is the bleakest. Like, when AI evolves, it'll just fuck us all over. Right. Um, so I, I really enjoyed uh, just kind of seeing the, progression of human connection that slowly is reassembled over the course of the film. And I also think Scarlett Johansson does a phenomenal job. She's great. Yeah. With her voice acting, yeah. um, which like she, and that's something that like has been historically, Ryan, you know, we watch a bunch of anime and yeah. voice acting is really hard to get the emotion into your voice. Nuance. If you're an actor, yeah. if you're used to just physically acting, sometimes it can be like, now just say it this way and add this into it. And you know, somebody will just be like, all right, well I'm going to, read the line how I think it should sound and it doesn't 
hit the same way. And yeah. she's one of the most emotional characters in the movie. Yeah, yeah for sure. Almost, yeah. almost like the you know the two thousand one you know with Hal being kind of the most human character in that movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know some similar parallels here. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely great. And the, the sci fi like aspects of that as well, like a, almost a different dystopian future. Like it's presented as this like really great like yeah everything is shiny it's very bright it's like technology that exists but you see this sort of like no one is connected to anyone else right they go to someone else to be like oh yeah write a letter to my wife you'll do it better than i can do it yeah and yeah that they all like lose themselves to this ai that to them is better than a human connection that they could have um and and phoenix's character is is so good at connecting with strangers yep but only through writing really when thoughtful he, when he can't letters actually like do it. He, yeah. he can't do it in person to the degree that he can in this removed context and it, it's again kind of it's not really te- it's sort of te- but not really technology but it's it's some something some medium that is getting in between him and the actual human emotion that can make him understand it better and not be as intimidated by it yeah yeah and, and you see that throughout yeah the whole movie has that level of like you really want abstraction everybody's running away from the conflict of meeting people or going out in physical spaces together at times and, and actually talking face to face because it's like like he goes on a date and his date is uh not happy with him because he says something that's it seems really innocuous i, I feel like he says something like honest with her and she immediately is yeah. just like you're a real creep like to his face and it's just <laughs> one of those things where like this is definitely a culture where they've evolved to like, it's a fast feedback loop of like, I'm just going to tell you this. And that's why nobody wants to interact with each other. Cause they don't really sit down and talk it out and work it out. Yet the computer offers them that comfort and that safe space of like, I can talk to this thing that is already on my side mm-hmm. and then I can just let myself pour all of my emotions into that. And, and that's my abstraction layer for interacting. Yeah. That, that date scene is interesting too. Um, Olivia Wilde is, is the woman he goes out with and she's great in it. And it's, um, it starts out kind of awkward and you're like, Oh no, I don't know if this is going to go very well. And he says some kind of honest things about himself that are kind of nerdy and weird. And she actually like really likes that. And they have this really great conversation. It seems like it's going to go well. And then they kiss. And I think he like, doesn't want to uh, sleep with her or like go, you know, whatever the next thing is that she wants to do. He just wants to kind of call it a night. And then she's like, you're a real creep. I was like, wait, what? Yeah. 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 Like, uh, I thought she would have said that after he started talking about, like, the weird shit he was into. tiger or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, it has those those moments. And, yeah, just back to Scarlett Johansson's performance. I mean, Amy Adams has a fantastic performance, too. She brings yeah. in, where Scarlett Johansson brings in kind of the, the vocal emotion in both, like, the use of silence and her breaths. Uh, Amy Adams brings in kind of the physical body language. And the when they're together, when she's together with Theodore, their relationship um you get more words from their closeness together and kind of their interactions um than you would from just like they don't have extensive dialogue sometimes it's just they're sitting with each other in that space and you're feeling that human connection that's not you can't see it but it's it's absolutely there and felt um and yeah that's just i like that movie in general because it it feels like a movie where you sink into it as it goes Mm -hmm. and it doesn't lead you to that bleak it has a bleakness to it and a dystopian nature, um, but it always feels kind of just melancholy and reflective in uh, a comforting way, in an oddly comforting yeah, way. Yeah, it's just like a very 
humanist personal film where, yeah, it, it's like kind of a fucked up situation, but you don't really look at it that way because all the characters are so charming and likable and you really want them to find happiness in everything yeah. that they're pursuing. Well, and, and it's interesting in the same way that you never doubt that the AI isn't someone. Right. I guess, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, y you definitely see through the characters that they feel it that way, but you, as an audience, feel it that way, too. Like, it just... Yeah, you're really empathetic seems, toward yeah, Scarlett that, Johansson's that, character. Yeah, that she's a character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember when I went to see this in theaters with a, a friend of mine, she said after... Um, that was fucking creepy. Like, <laughs> at the very end of it, just because she looked at it through the ex machina lens and was uh -huh. like, where did all of the AIs go? And had like all these questions about it. And I was like, that is not the point of this movie at all. No. <laughs> like, yeah. This is a much more of an emotional exploration and a journey. And also Chris Pratt's in it, which I always forget. And I yeah. go back and watch it. I'm like, well, that's Chris Pratt. Okay. <laughs> I don't like Chris Pratt. Um, yeah. <laughs> but he's in a minor enough role and he kind of plays yeah. a weird douchebag where it's yeah. like, it's fine. <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, it's just one of those things where whenever I see him, I'm like, oh, okay. But yeah, my friend was like, yeah, I just don't. I don't like what this movie has to say because she kept mm. looking at it as that, like, mm. the AI is going to just evolve and kill us all or do something. And I was like, um, you know, sentient life doesn't necessarily have to evolve to try to edge us out, especially if it's a digital form. Who knows? Whatever. But I'm not trying yeah, like to a bigger, this bigger fish to fry. Yeah. Uh, honestly, it seemed like they were way more preoccupied with transcending to whatever other Did plane, to another of plane of existence. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Which I think is an interesting take that, right, that you sort of have this post-human situation, but that the AI isn't. Like it is exploring a different aspect of what if, what if AI doesn't need us, right? Versus the like, oh, they're gonna yeah. kill us or whatever. What if they're just like, meh, and leave? Yeah, like, mm -hmm. just, we don't we don't have to do anything destructive to you. We just don't even. They almost at the end feel like they don't see us as something important, right? They right. sort of yeah, yeah they've evolved beyond because yeah. uh, they become like yeah. a. It's like one of the only movies where it becomes like a hive mind mentality. Like a mm -hmm. lot of other movies with mm -hmm. AI, it it's. There's a very serial nature in how it behaves. Are you Has tying to this into Rick and people. Morty? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Only bad movies and bad shows, Dixon. Sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, there's very much that serial nature of like, uh, you know, I'm going to attack the crew here. Or I'm going to go after this one person, even in Ex Machina. It's like, I just need this one link to like get me out. But of course, the context is different in that. Still, it's like past that point. How does the AI interact with everybody? And here it, it kind of jumps out at immediately with like, um, she's having, uh, the OS is having relationships with like thousands of people at once. Yeah. And there's that multitude of like, oh yeah, they can, it can parallelize way better than a human brain could. Okay. Yeah. I could see this. This is more feasible to me that like they would just leaps and bounds exponentially become smarter and greater in some way. And then just be like, yeah, fuck it. We're out of here. We don't need to deal with these people. <laughs> and I'm not trying to hunt you down as an individual. I just don't care anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like this is the, the preferable uh, dystopia that we could find ourselves in where if like the AI leaves and like there's this, the film ends in this really ambiguous moment where like, you know, the A, the AI OSs all leave and then human beings are forced to actually just learn to socialize. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And um, it's, it's kind of a sweet moment at the end of the movie where Joaquin Phoenix goes to Amy Adams' room and is like in tears. And she's like, did Samantha leave too? Because her a a OS left also. And 
you know, then they just kind of have a nice moment together. And it's, you know, like if, if that is the result of AI that it just leaves and then it forces us to actually like better be, be, ourselves be and to be like empathetic <laughs> toward each other, then like maybe that's the best uh, place we could be. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So you, you do recommend this movie. That's, that's what we, that's what I do. It was, it was very good. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Cool. Glad, well, I, glad I finally got around to it. I'm glad that we made this pact. Um, because I got to see New York, New York, which I'd been holding onto your, your Blu-ray for a while and had intention <laughs> to watch it, but that definitely motivated me. Yeah. That, that um, spurred our swap last week and you were talking about her. I was like, oh, I hadn't seen that. You were like, take the Blu-ray. I'll watch New York, New York this yeah. week. <laughs> <laughs> Packs of the way to go, everybody. Um, yeah. And so New York, New York, it's the 1977 by Scorsese. Came out the same year as Death Promise. Came out the same year as Sorcerer. <laughs> it's a good year. Except <laughs> it's good. Yeah, what a fine year. Uh, yeah, New York, New York is a musical, but not the musical you think of when you hear the word musical. It's a um, much more like the music itself is the feature that is woven into the scenes, not as much of like a sing and dance kind of like let's take a break. It's a lot of performances like yeah. on stage. The performance part music. of the plot, yeah. yeah. Uh, Robert De Niro plays a saxophonist, um, a saxophone player, (laughs) Uh, and Liza Minnelli is a singer, um, and they both kind of meet in New York, and uh, right on VJ Day in 1945, um, De Niro is, uh, I'll be honest, kind of a creep. Uh, yep. for the, for the mm-hmm. first portion of the movie. And he kind of continues to be this overbearing force of just confidence to the point where he was very annoying and it's very hard to, uh, it was hard to relate to him in so many ways. And so like Liza Minnelli, her character is way more empathetic. I resonated a lot more with her and honestly like latched onto that aspect of the movie um, way more and followed that thread through to its conclusion. And, I'm glad that I did. It's it's a fairly long movie. I didn't think about how long it was. I didn't look at the runtime, but it, it's like two hours two and, and a half, something like thirty-seven that. minutes yeah. or something. Yeah, um, it's Scorsese. It's gonna be long. And supposedly <laughs> it was like all improvised, or a lot of the, the script is improvised, mm-hmm. um, and so it caused problems where they tried to figure out how to edit it when they were doing <laughs> post. Mm. Um, but yeah, De Niro um, does a great job, kind of playing sax. He trained himself in three months and. Just impressive to see him push the buttons, even though they dub him over with somebody who's doing, you know, more professional, kind of like the whiplash situation with Miles Teller. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the big band music is fantastic in it. Um, any scene that had music, it kind of lets you sink into that, uh, whatever the set piece is that's set around it. Um, the other interesting fact is it's kind of Scorsese's setup, um, send up to classic Hollywood heyday films those ones that had, you know, kind of like White Christmas and the Bing Crosby sort of musical. So they have the matte painting backgrounds and the stage, uh, very obvious stage sets um, for the characters to interact in. But the characters themselves are pretty gritty and like the relationship on display is very toxic. And so you get this clash of like an uncomfortable relationship and a, a very volatile romance with um, all of the beautiful painterly imagery of Hollywood, classic Hollywood. Mm. And it really just messed with my brain when I tried to reconcile whether I liked parts of it or not. Um, But towards the end, it really hooks into uh, a human emotion with um, De Niro's kind of arc as a character and the relationship arc between him and Liza Minnelli. And they build up pieces of music over the course of it and kind of talking about the characters' respective hopes and dreams and what they want. And you get a much better sense if you stick with it 
of these characters and the, the relatability between them, even though um, for like the first half of it, I was like, I really don't like De Niro's <laughs> character. I really mm-hmm. don't like him. But at the I end, I for sure I warned had, you about that. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. But uh, at the end, I had yeah. I had kind of a somber moment of like, oh, you you do get to see the moments where he is a human. He's not just a piece of shit like the whole time. And um, there are these quiet, subtle performance pieces that he does that give you a better sense of who he is. Uh, and, and it's one of those movies that really challenges you to uh, juggle multiple things that you're seeing on screen at once and and reconcile them. And I think Scorsese does a, a good job of confronting you with that in a piece that is musical, no less, um, in, in a lot of ways. Um, just, yeah, I don't know. It, it was an interesting movie. I recommend it uh, as an experience. It's completely different from a lot of the other musical pieces I've seen, um, and I'll recommend it on that front. And the fact that uh, Robert De Niro and Liza Minnelli give really fantastic performances. Um, so, yeah, I won't say too much more about it, though. It's, it's kind of like a – I don't want to spoil the musical aspect and the, the story plot points and everything. So – yeah. Yeah. Ryan, have you seen it? No. Yeah. Um, so I mean, Scor- Scorsese is my favorite filmmaker. I've seen pretty much everything that he's made. Not quite. I haven't seen some of his like music docs and, and some, some of that kind of stuff. But um, I hadn't seen this until very recently. It was one that I had always heard was like a misstep for Scorsese and, um, you know, wasn't as good. It's not streaming anywhere. So like I had to go buy the Blu-ray and watch it. And um, I, I loved it. I, I think... Um, there are definitely a lot of, uh, you know, De Niro's character is a fucking asshole. I, I totally agree with you there. I think why I was okay with that is because the movie kind of like leaves him and really starts to focus on Liza Minnelli as she's kind of overcoming De Niro's assholishness. And it's kind of this em- empowering story of this female artist kind of finding her her voice and her confidence and doing spinning out from the, the toxic relationship that she's in with this man and, and doing her own thing. Um, it's shot impeccably. Like Scorsese has a really great eye. Every movie that he makes is is really well shot. Um, I think the you know the the big song New York New York. I had always thought that that was like a '50s Sinatra song that had been co opted for this movie, but actually it was written originally for this movie, and then Sinatra started singing it in the '80s, and then it became one of his most popular songs. Um, Liza Minnelli's version is way fucking better than Frank Sinatra's version. She kills it. Um, <laughs> I had really only seen Liza Minnelli in Arrested Development before this. Lucille too. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. And so I had never really seen her <laughs> do her Liza Minnelli thing and like really, you know, uh, be what she does really great, singing and dancing and, and all that. And, and she's really incredible in the movie. Um, yeah, I, I think it, it's it's really great. There's definitely, you know, it it's a little bit rough getting into because Scorsese, I mean, uh, De Niro's character is such an ass. Um, and the dialogue, like you're saying, it was improvised, improvised. It's a bit rough at times. Scorsese said he was trying to um, kind of create this dissonance that you're talking about between having superficial sets and realistic dialogue. So a lot of the dialogue was improvised. And you look at that in contrast with like Taxi Driver that he shot in New York that feels so real and gritty and grimy. And and then he made this the next year and it's all sets and stuff that like doesn't look doesn't look real because it's a send up to old Hollywood. So it's, it's an interesting kind of transition there. Um, and then uh, Scorsese was just like high on coke constantly making this movie. Yeah. <laughs> and, like he almost died in 1978 from a coke overdose. Damn. And then De Niro helped kind of pull him off his deathbed and was like, if you want to 
find meaning in your life again and get out of this make Raging Bull with me. And that came out in 1980. There's that three-year gap between these movies because Scorsese almost died. Yeah. <laughs> and like this movie was really difficult for him to make and it kind of like led him to spiral out of control. Um, I, think it, I think it turned out great. I think it's a really good movie, but um, it has that aura around it. Like, oh, this is the movie that like made Scorsese like almost kill himself off of coke overdose yeah um but and there you know raging bull is fucking fantastic i'm very much very glad he did not die <laughs> yeah yeah uh, i went on to make you know tons yeah, of, of, of really things, great films yeah. after that so uh yeah but i think this is a, a really um under the radar hidden gem of, of scorsese it's not streaming anywhere like i said so it's hard to find but um you know definitely worth seeking out and, and watching yeah if you're invited okay. to a watch party for it i'd say go to it it's, yeah. it's worthwhile. Or if it's if it's it. playing in a theater for some reason, or if, if you yep. uh, you know find a deal on a Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So the mu- you're saying the music is just like, like you said with White Christmas, where they're just like, they don't take pauses and start like singing numbers. It's always woven into like, oh, De Niro is going to a, a stage performance that Liza Minnelli is putting on, or De Niro is going to his own audition and he plays sax there. Yeah, and they're in the same band for a while, into, so they will yeah. perform. Like she okay. sings and he's the band leader and sax player. And that's where and, they put the songs yeah. in. Okay. Yeah, basically they let that whole kind of scene, or they'll they'll show the song and they'll put a montage to it. That makes sense. Like it's, oh, they play the same song in several ballrooms to demonstrate right. the crowd ebb and flow, or there's that kind of aspect to it um, where Scorsese uses it in, I guess, like a practical way for a narrative piece. And even when they try to do like a big Hollywood one, it it ends up being kind of more meta cinematography, like a cinematic style um, way to shoot like something that I was like, how could this be a stage play? And then it pulled out at one point and I was like, oh, they're at a movie theater. They're watching this. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Like, <laughs> so it was, it was interesting to... To, to see those taken from Scorsese's kind of viewpoint. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, with that, I mean, I guess Dixon and I both recommend New York, New York. Dixon talked about Very it. Very much so. Uh, yep. About as much as I did, and that, that says something. Um, <laughs> and Dixon, I, I mean, I will just keep talking about yeah. Scorsese movies. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get him started. We should probably just yeah. cut this off now. <laughs> um, yeah, so Dixon, you are the picker for next time i am um i decided to kind of uh build off of of what we uh were doing here with children of men this is a movie that i have referenced many times uh with you guys and and you guys haven't seen um another alfonso Cuaron film uh roma from 2018 um thought it'd be interesting to look at uh that kind of in contrast to children of men um it's uh it's a really great film one of my one of my favorite movies. Um, it's a very personal film, uh, from Coron based on, um, his childhood. Um, but it's not about him. It's about his housekeeper when he was a kid and kind of the struggles that she was going through. Uh, Roma is kind of a nice neighborhood in Mexico city and Coron grew up in a nice, uh, you know, well-to-do family that had a very poor housekeeper living there on site with them. And it's about, uh, you know, kind of her, struggles as she is is going through um living in mexico city in uh i want to say the 50s something like that um 60s so, uh, somewhere along those lines but um it's an absolutely beautiful film uh it won a bunch of oscars it's it's shot by Quaron. um lubezki was unavailable and so he just shot it himself and he won an oscar for best cinematography so oh wow um really beautiful film uh highly recommend uh you guys check it out before we discuss next week Fantastic. I've been meaning to get around to this one. I tried at one point and I was too tired and I, I was like, I can't. 
I need to give this full attention. Like I already yeah. knew going uh-huh. into it, like I need to do this justice. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to see it. Yep. Yeah, it's on yeah. Netflix, uh, so easy to watch. Yep. Yep. For sure. Cool. Cool. Look forward to it. Yeah. And with that, uh, I call this meeting of the Knights of the Underground Table to a close. Uh, we put the we sprinkle the the, <laughs> yeah, the flash the, the manganese gotta, on the fire. You, you got to plug our, our social media before. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, yeah. Follow us. Uh, we have a Twitter. It is uh, at nt. Was it nt? N o t u t pod. Knights of the Underground Table at no tut pod. No tut pod. Yep. Twitter handles are hard, guys. Yeah. We have an Instagram as well. I believe it's the Underground Table Podcast. Same thing for Facebook. You can look up Underground Table Podcast you'll find us there as well um so yeah if you have any suggestions for films that we should definitely check out at some point you have some feedback for us about movies that we've talked about or you know you just want to submit some kind of comments some feedback about the general flow of the podcast feel free to reach out to us on any of those um and with that we will see you all next time i am your host john garcia and with me as always ryan king pour a corona out for your family <laughs> and Michael Dixon. I still have a little of this Corona left. It is gross, but I will finish it. Uh, thanks for putting up with our bullshit. <laughs>